1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 26th, 2016, and this is episode 1717 of the Survival Podcast. And it's about keeping Quail, but it's a Q&A show. It's all questions that I keep getting about Quail. What I figured out was like every time I posted anything about Quail anywhere, Facebook, Twitter, Uh, YouTube, on the blog, on my farm website, whatever it was, I'd get like, bam, 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 bam. And a lot of them were the same questions over and over again. I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll function stack. I'll answer all these questions one time. And then when somebody says, uh, what is the difference between an AM quail and a brown quail, I can go, go to 1717 and look it up. And I thought, this will be a nice, easy show on a Tuesday. I'll be out working on my quail aviary by, you know, two o'clock at the latest. Yeah, this reminds me of the show that I did on Q&A follow-up for small batch mead making, except it's even worse. The thread I started at Facebook alone and said, give me your questions for this, was like, you you scroll through like five pages of questions, and some of them are really, really specific to the individual, and I I can't do that in a show like this and, and get through it. So, what I did is I thought, I know, I'll just break these down to like general questions. And it's probably the longest list of questions I've ever answered in one show in my life. Anyway, and because of that, I want to do something with this show that I generally don't take the time to do. And maybe somebody out there who would want to just help out for once could do so. Please, if you'd be willing to listen to this show and write down the timestamps of each question, and I'm going to, the questions are on the blog. I'm going to read them as exactly as I have them written, and if you sent me a list, I'll go back and append a timestamp. If not, I'll get to it maybe this weekend and do it myself. Please don't just do it. Please email me, put Quail in the subject line, and tell me you want to do this, and if I email mail you back and say, go ahead, then you do it. If I email you back and say, hey, somebody else is already doing it, then, then don't. Um, or maybe if somebody wanted to do half, I could get somebody to do the other half or something like that, but... It's it's gonna take a while because I think this is gonna be one of those monster shows. Though I am gonna try to keep the answers as short as possible and concise as possible, and not go into great detail on any one of them because I think there'll be tons of detail by the time this is over with. Before we do that though, let's go ahead and get into our. Let's go ahead and uh, hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is the TSP Business Directory. If you want to do business with other members of this community, the directory is the perfect place to find them or be found by them. Every business listed in our directory is part of the TSP community. Small businesses providing great products and services for things you probably buy frequently. So doesn't it just make sense to do business within our community when you can? And when you do business with a Survival Podcast community member, please leave a review. This helps other members know who to do business with and provides feedback to help all vendors improve their customer service. The Business Directory is spam-free, feature-rich, and a great way to find what you need, or to be found by those that need what you have. Check out the Business Directory by going to thesurvivalpodcast.com and clicking on the directory banner or the tab at the top that says Business Directory. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over twenty years that 's what backwood 's home is to me one thousand nine hundred and ninety four I became a subscriber to backwood's home i didn 't even start the survival podcast till two thousand and eight. I was their customer for all of those years in the early years of the survival podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of backwood 's home magazine they 're an incredible company and hey, if you haven 't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, and I got two for you today. And I kind of wish that yesterday's show had this one in it, because it kind of fits the rant I did yesterday about the snowstorm, the, the blizzard that wasn't the blizzard that they made it out to be on TV, because we have, in 1717, it is the snowstorm of the century. And we have Lady Mary introduces a smallpox inoculation. I think that would be a good one for a lot of you guys to read. I think it would be a great one for a lot of people that are what I'm accused of being anti-vaxxers to read. So what I mean by that is there are people like me who think we have a problem with how we administer vaccinations in this country that we do too much too fast to young children and we give young children vaccinations they just don't need. We, we we don't need to be giving infants hepatitis B vaccine. They probably won't be having sex or using using drugs intravenously uh anytime soon. We 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 probably don't need to be vaccinating children for that. It's just as one. And that the frequency is out of whack and that we could do vaccinations properly and get a lot out of them. Without shocking the immune system with the sheer number that a child's given by five years of age today. And for that, I'm called an anti-vaxxer. But then there are people who truly are completely anti-vaccination that say the smallpox vaccination is not what wiped out smallpox. This actually is the year that we kind of sort of found out how these things started to work, and it was poo-pooed by the medical establishment at the time. This might be a good thing to read. I believe vaccinations do work, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I also believe there's real problems with some things that are going into vaccines today that don't need to. Um, and there's they, the government hides. Uh, I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna let it go because this is a snowstorm of the century. Last December, New England was buried under five feet of snow. It isn't usually cold. This it is unusually cold this January. But from around February 18th to March 9th, New England is hit by a series of storms, each Dumping about five feet of snow over the landscape. Let, let me say that again, just so it doesn't skate over you. A series of storms, each dumping about five feet. Not a storm of five feet. Each dumping. Okay, got it. Drifts are as deep as 25 feet. Entire houses are covered only, and the only indication the house exists underneath is a thin, thin wisp of smoke. The residents are burning their furniture because they can no longer reach their woodsheds. Boston is shut down and the church services are canceled. Livestock losses are devastating and over 90% of the deer population will not survive to spring. This unusual series of storms is probably due to recent volcanic activity in Japan, Indonesia and the Philippines. From now on, life will be measured from the time before the great snow of 1717 and the time after. My take by Alex Shrug, the blizzard of 2016, this January, dumped an unusual amount of snow over a wide area of New England. But compared to the great snow of 1717, it was nothing. I heard anxious claims of snowfall measurements approaching record-breaking depths. The previous record they were referring to was from the great blizzard of 1888, which dumped about 40 inches of snow in New York and more throughout New England. The great snow of 1717 was a series of great blizzards. I also heard complaints about the stores being depleted of food supplies. This is due to people not being prepared for normal and expected problems that occur in their region. Imagine what might have happened if this, if the snowstorms continued. Trucks and trains would be shut down. The food you had in your pantry would be all year was for weeks. Under the weight of so much snow, electrical lines would eventually fail. And what would people do then? Are snowstorms really such an unexpected occurrence in New England during the winter? I want to speak up a little bit for people that got a little bit miffed at me yesterday. Because I heard from a lot of people like, Everybody that lives here thought this was overblown, too. I understand. I was talking about the media yesterday, not the people. Though, there are a lot of people that are screwed when it snows. Um, That's why they run out at the last minute and clean out the bread and milk. You know, again, I'll just leave it at this for today because today's show is going to be long. Uh, The people of this country in general, the general population, are about as prepared for a disaster as a chicken is for hot oil. And the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Uh, Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, if you want to get into quail keeping, I bet you you're going to think at the end of this show, that show was worth a year's membership to the MSB. I try to make as many of those shows as I can a year where any individual show, you're like, that was worth 50 bucks for a year. And then get your money back on discounts to things you probably buy in any way, and then get all the other shows for the year, and get, like, like two hundred dollars worth of ebooks, downloadable for free the day you sign up, and it's affordable too. Hey, do you know you can join for as little as five bucks a month? Yeah, you can join for a month for five bucks. You get everything from day one, and if you decide you like it, you can change your billing frequency to annually. Just get in touch with me if you want to do something like that. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into. Uh, oh, Bob Wells' plan of the week that had to be on a. On a day that's going to go long anyway, huh? Uh, Bob Wells has a new plant for us every week. We uh, talk about one of the perennial plants we can grow in our own backyard. This year we have the 4-in-1 fruit salad tree. It is adaptable from Zone 6 to Zone 9. multi Multi-buttered fruit tree on Nemagard rootstock with four of the following varieties. Pink, white, peach. Harcot Apricot Harken Peach Harco Nectarine Superior Plum. If you need more variety from a limited space, the multi-budded fruit tree is the answer. Multiple-budded fruit trees will give you several fine selections of tree-ripened fruit from the space of a single tree. Bobwell specializes in a landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at BobwellsNursery.com. I think these uh, multi-variety uh, trees are great. I, I really do. I just, again... Like I said last time we had one of these, you really have to think about your pruning and you have to balance the tree. You have to balance the tree. It's, it's very important to do so. And, and the other thing I would say is if you want this approach but don't necessarily want a multi-budded tree, consider the uh, backyard nursery techniques of Dave Wilson, who is actually the source of this tree for Bob Wells Nursery, where you dig one great big hole and you put four trees in it, and you prune them all to the total height of about five feet, and you prune this canopy that's like a big bush. And that way, not only could you do this and have like all of these stone fruits together, but you could actually mix things. You could have an apple and a pear and a, a plum and a cherry in the same area. Now, you still need to think about your cross-pollination with maybe another grouping, but that's just the possibility of what can be done. And when I've talked about that in the past, I've heard people say, but, but how do two trees grow like that? Well... Right out where I hold my ducks, I have a live oak and a black ash that look like a single trunk at the bottom. They grew together so closely, and they're two of the healthiest trees on my property. Nature did that all by itself. It's not unusual for trees. Go into a forest and see how many times you'll see mixed species growing literally attached to each other at the hip, so to speak, at the base, and both very, very large, very healthy trees. So... That's another consideration you can have there. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. If you sent me a question, it's probably answered in this show. It may not be your version of it, but most of the questions that were sent to me are being answered. Most of the questions that... were sent to me that were really, really specific. I live in Zone 5A, and my solar aspect is it's actually answered here, but I can't answer it that way in a show like this. Okay, And some of those are kind of unique, and I've kind of flipped them, and they may be done in follow-up shows in the future uh, with the general feedback as a single topic, but they're too in-depth to go into here. So again, if somebody out there would like to volunteer to timestamp these questions for me, I'm going to read each question twice to make that easier, and then I'm going to give an answer. And if somebody would want to do that, just email me, tspcquail, in the subject line, and please don't go to work on it until I get back to you, because I don't want like five different people doing the same work. It just doesn't make sense. All right, uh, and again, anybody that would want to do that, I'd really appreciate it. All right, so the biggest question I get every time I post something is, what type of quail do I have? What type of quail do I have? I currently have Kortnick's quails, which are Japanese quail. My particular type of quail are Texas A&M quail. They're white. They were part of the Agricultural uh, Breeding Extension Program at U, uh, UT Texas, uh, Texas A&M. I'm sorry, not UT Texas. That's going to upset some people there. they <laughs> got An Aggie and a Longhorn. No, anyway, Texas A&M University. That's why they're called Texas A&M quail. They were specifically bred for the following intent, and I'll I'll say more about this in a second. But number one, to be white, so that if they were plucked, they made a really clean-looking carcass. If there was a stray feather or something, and they'd have a nice white skin, too, so they'd look good, so they'd be a good meat bird. So that they would be a little larger than the brown Cortnix quails, which are the same birds, really, and I'll get to that in a second as well. And so they would be extremely productive egg layers. I would say they've pretty much done all those things with the fact that I don't think they're really much better than browns, but they do have a lighter color to the skin, especially uh, the meat, the meat, not really. Okay. Uh, but they are basically Courtney's quails. They're Japanese quail that have been bred for centuries, thousands of years, really for the purpose of meat and egg production on a small scale. And and that's what they are. Um, I also hear always, do you have a good book to recommend on quail? I I don't. I don't. I bought several books. I'm a book consumer. I really am. Um, Again, do I have a good book to to, uh, recommend on quail? I, I think by the end of this episode that you'll know more than you would learn in a book, and you'll have enough of an empowerment that if you want to do this, you'll be able to just get started at the time that makes sense for you. My problem with the books that I've read on quail is they're completely contradictory to each other. One person says this, one person says that, and, and I think that it's true of all books, but certainly in like small-scale animal management, the book is always written from the opinion of the author. And a lot of you said, well, I, I learned better from books. I don't think you'll learn this better from books. I think you'll learn this from this podcast. I think you'll learn it by talking to other people. I think you'll learn it by watching YouTube videos. But in the end, I think you'll learn it best... By just getting started. Because it's not that hard. And by the end of today, you'll know more about this than I knew when I got my first birds. By a long shot. Because a lot of this is what I've learned over the last four months, five months now, I guess, raising quail. Okay? Um, The next question. What type of quail gives the best yield for meat and eggs? What type of quail gives the best yield for meat and eggs? Um, Japanese coordinates quail. (laughs) I mean... There's just, nothing else really competes with it. There's some birds that are larger or whatever, but when it comes to the feed conversion uh, capability of the bird, nothing compares. Um, They have, again, they've been bred for well over a thousand years for this purpose. And while it's possible that such breeding could be done and selection could be done with other breeds of quail, Nothing really compares to overall feed conversion to eggs, meat, speed of growth, um, ease of processing, uh, housing requirements, flexibility, adaptability, the whole thing, okay? That doesn't mean you can't raise other breeds of quails, and it doesn't mean they won't give you eggs. It doesn't mean they won't give you meat. But when you look at the raw numbers, they can't compete with the Japanese Kortnix quail, okay? Uh, The next question, what is the difference between Texas A&M quail and brown quail? Okay, Again, as I said before, uh, I'll repeat it. What is the difference between Texas A&M quail and brown quail? As as I said earlier, they are the same bird. One is white and one is brown. The the Texas A&M breeding program selected white genetics, and I'll talk about how to do that with the next question as a base of their breeding program because, again, they wanted lighter-colored meat and lighter-colored skin. I do not believe they got lighter-colored meat. Everybody says it. I think if I put two of them right in front of you, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I, ra- I rose, raised uh, 140 uh, meat quail that were all brown courtnicks. Uh and I, when I butchered these uh, white A&Ms, I can't tell the difference they taste the same, they look the same, they're about the same color to me. Uh they're purported to be larger than the browns. So there was a, so what Texas A&M did was okay, first we're going to we're going to thin out these genes to get a white bird. Then we're going to breed it for size. We're going to build breed it for growing the biggest eggs possible and we're going to breed it to 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 lay as many eggs as possible. Well, a brown corkdick's quail already for like the first 6 to 8 months of its its laying life lays an egg a day. So I don't know how you're really going to increase that. The eggs, I I don't think you can tell a difference in the eggs. They look the same. So I think the real difference between the A&Ms and the browns are they're kind of a novelty. People like them. Uh, They do come out of that lineage. But the the real difference is they're harder to sex. A brown quail, you can look at their breast, and you can tell a male from a female. uh, by One has kind of like a red breast, uh, and the other one... uh, well, the female has like a speckled breast, That's what I was trying to say, and the male has kind of like this reddish-brown breast. So you just look at them and go, okay, male-female. Really, really simple. And if you if you want to uh, get a visual on that, just Google it and, and click on images, and you'll see people with them side-by-side holding on there, male-female. Uh, so the A&Ms, to me, are actually, if anything, they've so far been a detriment because the way that I've had to sex my A&M quail is I stand out there and I watch and I wait for somebody to crow. And when he crows, I put a band on him. And then, you know, I've got a marked and I know if I want to call or, or keep a male. Or sometimes you find some of your males are kind of quiet and they're nice when they're quiet because they're not making that. And their noise is kind of obnoxious. It's like a sound. Uh, and. <laughs> so, you, then you kind of watch and see does anybody, you know, mount anybody else? And that's most likely a male, though females sometimes do mounting behaviors for some weird reason in the animal kingdom, just as a dominance display, so it's not 100%. The other way you can sex them is by, it's called vent sexing. You basically rub the vent and the males emit a foam. Um, not really hip on doing that if I don't have to and uh, the two times somebody tried to show me how to do it, they couldn't get it to work, and they were using brown quail where we knew we had a male, so I don't know how reliable it is. So that brings me to my next question, because I've talked about switching back to browns. You know, Why am I likely to switch back to brown quails from A&M's? Well, the reason I'm likely to switch back is what I just said. I think the ease of sexing and the fact that all of the promises of... The A&M quail being, you know, higher frequency layer, larger eggs, larger bodied, don't seem to pan out. In fact, when, when Nick Ferguson picked up some from somebody down in Hillsboro when he came here to our workshop, they said, why do you want these? And he said, you know, they're bigger. They, like, and the, the guy said, the browns are bigger. The Browns. So the guy that's doing it, like with this kid and been doing it for years, said browns actually are better. So I, I think that if you wanted white quail, okay, fine for the purpose of them being white. That's about it. I don't really care what color they are. So I think e- the, the the fact that it's easier to sex them makes the browns more advantageous to me. Because if you, if you wanted to breed your birds to be larger, you could go into a rack system, check eggs every day, weigh the eggs, and selectively hatch the largest eggs and selectively breed from the largest birds that lay the largest eggs. And you could do that a couple times a year because it only takes them eight weeks to start laying. So, you could actually do s- several generations, about three generations to a calendar year if you wanted to, to do your own pr- program like that. Uh, I just don't feel that Texas AM has lived up to the promise of what they claim to have done with this bird. And if your experience differs, I mean, I don't know. I got my AMs from a specific line. I know Nick and Mike, Nick, Nick Ferguson and Mike Jordan got theirs from a totally different line of AM birds. And... They really don't see anything any different. And the whole AM thing, it's just a white quail. When they say it's an AM, what it's supposed to mean is it comes from genetics from quail that came out of that breeding program. Because anybody can, if they really wanted to, um, breed white quails from browns eventually. And so that's my next question I've had. How would you, if you were going to breed, white quails, and all you had to start out with was browns, how would you use brown quail to get white quails? Okay, this is a little bit of a genetics lesson, okay? The white gene in brown quail is what we call a simple recessive gene. And what that means is if an animal is born and it has that that recessive gene to to have white feathers, or mostly white feathers, because they do have a little brown here and there around their butt and what have you, and it also has a gene for brown, the brown gene will dominate the white gene. And you have what you call a heterozygous animal that's heterozygous for a recessive trait. That means it's carrying the gene, and when it breeds with another quail, it's a 50% shot that it will contribute that gene. Now I need another animal with a white gene to, to breed with it, and it works out like this. If I take a white quail and breed it to a brown quail, and the brown quail is just a brown quail with no white genetics, and I cross them, I will get 100% brown quail. All of them will be heterozygous for white, because they have to be. Because I know one parent had two whites, and I know one parent had at least one brown. Right? If I know she's all brown, let's say it's a white male and a a brown female, I know she's 100% brown from past breeding, it's still 50%. If she was a heterozygous, female. Then what's going to happen is when I breed them, about 25% of the babies will be white. Okay? And then 100% of the babies will carry the genetics for white. So half of them will be white, and the other half will carry the genetics for white, because she's going to contribute at 50%. Now if I hatch four eggs, that may not play out, but if I hatched 100 eggs from that pairing... It's going to play out on the averages. And you can you can look up Punnett squares and work it all out, but in the end, all you need to know is if you have two whites and breed them, you're going to get more whites. You have to, unless we find another recessive gene that's something else, fuchsia or something, I don't know. But once we've identified birds as whites, if you keep breeding them to each other, you'll get more whites. And if you have a white bred to a brown, and then you breed that bird to another white, another outside the genetics to to get genetic diversity in there, half of them will be white. So you can breed any direction you want to with with quail. Um, The easiest thing to do would be buy white quails. And even the people that hatch browns will probably have some coming out white. So this is what I want to say here before we move on. My opinion of Texas A&M quails is because the ones I have don't seem to be any different. The ones I know somebody else has don't seem to be any different. And both of them are from places I consider to be reputable breeders. The guy down the road that does mine, I don't doubt him for a second. But it doesn't mean that he knows for sure that his birds are a He got them from a breeder. who got them from a breeder. So it may be that there's a lot of white quail floating around that aren't Texas A&M quail. Though when he sold me browns, there was a handful of white birds in there. And he said, they're not A&Ms. So he's, he's keeping his stock pure. So... You can take that with a grain of salt. But if you just wanted your own white quail, if you talk to people that breed quail and hatch quail, they'll probably tell you, yeah, you know what? I can I can save some whites for you as a starting point. Alright. So that goes to the next question. And that question is since birds like Bob White Quail get bigger, why not raise them? It's a feed conversion and time issue. A bob white quail fully grown will be almost twice as big as a Cornics quail. It really will. However, it will not get to half of its size in the same time that a Courtneyx quail will get up to slaughter size. They still take longer to get to the same place. And there's something a little bit magical to me about quails. The amount of meat for the size of the carcass, the ratio like bone to flesh, is pretty outstanding. I, I, I kind of feel like if you took a chicken... That was about the size of a quail, like a young pullet or, or cockerel that was, you know, a few weeks old and about the same size as a quail. And you cleaned it, you would not get the same am- amount of meat off of it. Uh, they're pretty meaty for how little they really are. Uh, another thing with the, the Bob Whites, they're going to lay eggs for you nowhere near the frequency that you're going to get at Courtney's. You can do it, but you're definitely, if you're going with Bob Whites or something like that, going to want to go to like an Avery or a run style where they can fly and things like that because they've not been bred for this small scale captivity. They are a wild bird. Another reason you might not want to do bob whites or any other form of native quail to North America is it may be illegal in your state, it may require special permitting, it may require the department of making you sad to come out and do inspections or it may not. It all depends. You have to check local ordinances. But I don't see the point in raising them unless that's just what you want. If you but but if what you want is meat and the eggs, they can't compete with the Japanese quail. Okay. Um, the next question is, well, how do I find quail to buy, especially locally? A lot of people don't want to ship them, or they ship fertile eggs, and if you're not an experienced hatcher, it's hard to do. So how do I find quail locally? Well, the way you find quail locally, the easiest way i found is to go to Craigslist and type in quail and search your area, and you'll probably find somebody within 100 miles or less and that would be a day trip at most to go get them. Uh, A lot of times you'll find people really close. That's all I did. I didn't call in the Jack Spearco help me find quail uh, thing or anything like that. There actually was somebody from TSP that I was going to buy from that was from quite a bit further away, like 40, 50 miles away, and we kind of disconnected on email, and I wasn't able to to stay in touch with them. But then I was like, okay, let me just go find uh, a local guy. Went to Craigslist, typed it in. The guy that I buy from is literally two miles away from me two miles away and he's set up to do it and that's what he does it's just you know kind of he's a retired guy and it's kind of his hobby now or one of his many hobbies and he's a super nice guy and I and, and, and that makes I'm sourcing locally so I, I don't think it's really actually that hard I think this is getting more and more popular. And the nice thing is, when you do that versus buying them, like I think Stromberg's chickens sells them at certain times of year as chicks. They ship them, I think, something like that. Though they're, God, they're small to be shipping. Um, is you when you go to pick them up, you can see how that person's raising them, and it may not be the way you choose to do it in the end, but they're doing it well enough. Their birds are reproducing and not dying, so it's a good starting point for you and that means you have a contact and if you're having problems you can go back to them and a lot of times these guys that do this there there's plenty of business in this but there's no huge money in providing chicks. I mean it's it's not like it's big you're rolling, you know, rolling big benjamins or something doing this. You know, if the guy sell them for a dollar a bird and you go like 40 birds it's 40 bucks. So they're more than happy to help you You know, learn how to incubate and things like that. Because actually, what happens to these guys a lot of times is somebody wants 200 birds and they can't hatch that many, and having another person in the area that maybe can hatch some for them. that usually is considered very advantageous by these guys. They have their own little networks. I'm learning that. When I'm in the the feed stores and I see somebody buying game bird bird ration, I'll always ask them what they're buying. If they're a quail guy, a long conversation in shoes, and I'll be like, do you know Chris? And they're like, oh, yeah, I know Chris. I got my first birds. And everybody seems to know each other. So there's more here than you would think, and very few of these guys are actually selling chicks. There's a few here and there that are doing it, and... But what I've learned by talking to people is that there's a lot of them that do know how to do it. And if he needs like an extra 40 birds this month, they'll they'll run their incubator and then they'll sell their birds to him at like you know 50 cents a piece because uh, it's just a little, it's a it's a bag of feed or whatever at the end of the month. Okay, so that's how you find them locally. It's the easiest way I found is to just check Cra- Craigslist. Um, next question: How would you? I already did that one, so. I don't know why it's out of order there, but how would you breed to get white quails if you wanted that? I'll have to fix that. Uh, what is the biggest initial cost to getting set up for your quail? What's the biggest initial cost to getting set up? Caging. Caging. And you can self-build to, to cut the cost down a lot. The Probably the most important thing is using small enough caging wire to protect your birds and keep them from getting out and keep them from killing themselves. Um, we the, the caging we're working on building uses one half by one uh, uh, coated wire. It's coated with like a black uh, coating that, that makes it really easy to clean and keeps it safe for the quails. Uh, but I've seen people use hardware cloth and, and many other things. But just realize that even a fully grown quail is about the size of a coffee cup. So you need to make sure that the wire is is, is small enough to keep the bird in and to keep predators out. If you have snakes in your area, then your cage needs to be snake-proof. It, it, it's a dinner bell. Uh, the two snakes that I have the most of in this area are yellow yellow-belly racers and uh, Texas rat snakes, which is basically a rat snake, and it's a color face thing. They call them Texas rats, and they love eggs and they love small birds. I mean, especially especially the rat snakes. You call them rat snakes because they like to eat rats and mice, but I'll tell you what, they make a living, especially in spring. Those things climb a straight tree. You wouldn't believe a snake could get up. They go right off them, and they clean out nests and birds and birds, baby birds and birds' eggs and, and what have you like crazy, especially like black, uh, the, the rat snakes will get up four or five, six foot, and they become much more uh, predator-centric on small mammals at that point. But when they're really little... Like when they're first born, they're about a foot long. They're very agile little snakes. They can get up trees, and you know, all these little songbird eggs are just perfect for a snake that size. And baby uh, hatchling ch- chicks, they'll sit up there in the nest, they'll eat the whole damn nest until they're bloated. If they get in your cage, depending on their size, they're either going to start killing birds or start eating eggs. And uh, you can have a small snake, like a small rat snake, or in my case, these racers as well that's not big enough to eat your adult birds and won't even try it. But we'll get in there and pig out on four or five eggs, and if if he's got a way in and out, he may be able to, even with the eggs in him, get out and come back and and be cleaning out your eggs and not know it. Uh, Quail are not like chickens are sometimes. I've seen chickens where a small snake gets into a chicken coop, and I had one I felt bad for him. I had to kill him. He had half of his back eaten, and the chickens were just tearing him up. Um, uh, and quail won't really attack. They just kind of freak out and I'll move away. Uh, I've had quail with my chicken tractor, and, or that I've modified for quail with hardware cloth, uh, half inch hardware cloth, and, or quarter inch hardware cloth is what that's done with. And I, I've caught yellow racers, like, try, probing it, going all the way around it, trying to get in. So your caging's gonna be your biggest expense. And the reason I get into the, the, the hardware cloth material and all, it's pretty expensive. When you start figuring out making like a four by eight tractor and covering it on all sides, top, bottom, side with material like that, that actually is probably the biggest expense in your caging is your mesh because you can build it out of like stud lumber that sells for $3 for a seven foot, six foot long stick, you know, at at Home Depot and Lowe's. Cheap, you don't have to be pressure treated. I I built mine out of stud lumber. It's three years old now and it's held together beautifully. It's awful heavy, and I'll talk more about that in another question. But yeah, the stud lumber stuff is uh, is sufficient for doing that, and it's heavy, so it doesn't get turned over. I mean, everything else is pretty affordable. Uh, you know you need some method to to allow them to eat food. You need something to hold water for them. Uh, you can be as sophisticated or as kind of uh, Tinker oriented as you want. Brad Davies, he's been doing this a long time. His feeders are nothing but the the thin walled four inch pipe, like the drain pipe stuff. It looks like PVC, but it's thinner walled and easy to cut. Um, with the ends taped up with duct tape, and then a slit cutting them, and then they kind of lay back and you kind of lift them up and attach them to the cage, and the quail stick their head through and eat that, and it works fine. They don't care what it looks like. So caging, I think, is your your biggest initial cost, and it's the it, to me, it's the most important thing to get right it does you no good to keep these birds and have them killed by predators or have the cage be something that actually kills them because they get caught in it the wrong way or something or ending up completely miserable with your cage because it's hard to service and work on. Okay, So next question. What bases do you really need to cover before you get your birds? I had a lot of versions of this question, but that was kind of the generalization I came up with. What bases do you really need to cover before getting birds? It's a great question. Because people do stuff like this all the time. They go out and get some chickens and realize they have none of the stuff they need to take care of them or ducks or whatever. Um, Food, (laughs) water, shelter, security. I mean, those are your big things. So we just talked about security. So you want to make sure whatever you've built or whatever you've sourced, snakes can't get into it if snakes are a possibility. It also needs to be predator-proof if it's going to be outdoors from things like raccoons, foxes, skunks, possums, coyotes. But I think the biggest one, since we are not going to be keeping quail in the open, and I'll, I'll get to that later, but we're not going to do that. They're going to be contained in something. So your biggest concerns are predators that can get in snakes. Again, the reason I'm so harped on this is I spent a lot of years of my life breeding and, and keeping snakes. It was something that was like a thing for me when I was a kid. I wanted to grow up and be like Marlon Perkins and go, you know, catch uh, you know, anacondas in the Amazon and whatever. And when I kind of became successful, I had this office with all this great built-in shelving. I'm like, I could breed snakes there, and I kind of got out of hand. But I kept a lot of different species of snakes. I specialized in a couple species. I did a lot of breeding projects, so I had a lot of snakes in caging and different rack systems and what like what what have you. And it's, it's always amazed me, you look at a cage and go, there's no way that snake can fit through any possible way to get out of that cage. And next thing you know, you find it coiled up around your computer uh, tower because it's warm there. And you look at it and you, you can't see anything that failed. If they can get out, they can also get in. So that's one of your biggest things. The other one is raccoons. Raccoons are pretty adept at opening things and stuff like that. Uh, the caging that I have from uh, Steve Larkin is based on the designs he does for sugar gliders and monkey cages. And the latch is really kind of hard and, and heavy steel, and it kind of loops around. I still think that it might be possible that a raccoon could figure it out. It might be. And, and I, when I, if I were to put them... In some sort of an outdoor system, I would probably put a secondary latch on them because raccoons are very, very creative. And any kind of way that you've set up so your birds can feed by sticking their head through caging or something like that, you need to think about the fact that if a raccoon can stick his hand in there, if he can reach the bird, he'll pull its head off, he'll try to pull it out. Cats can do the same thing. So um, you want secure caging. So security, also caging just for containment. You want to make sure that you can shelter the animals from the elements, and I'll 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 talk more about that because I had so many questions. But I live where it's cold. But I live where it's hot. But I live where it's hot and cold. We're going to do that later. But you definitely want to be able to shelter from the elements of rain and wind. Uh, You need to have feed in advance. You need to have a feed delivery system, some way that you're going to be able to feed your birds, and kind of think about how you want to set that up. Because there's no wrong way, and there's no right way. There's lots of ways. Uh, water, make sure you have a way to deliver water. You're going to need to make sure that you have a way to provide grit, uh, and specifically oyster shell, uh, for calcium because we'll get into why that's important in a bit, but those need to be and other, and you need birds and you need feed and exactly what kind of feed we'll get to in a second, but you need to make sure you have a source of feed. That's it. If you have that, you'll figure it out as you go. But it's important that we be able to prevent overexposure to sun, overexposure to wind, and overexposure to wet and rain. And you're going to probably, if you're getting chicks, you're going to need a brooding solution that we'll also get to later. So it's up to you whether you're going to buy birds that are kind of a little bit along or not. Uh So... There you go, on your basic covering your bases. Next question, how small a number makes sense? What's the lowest number of quail you'd recommend for a family want to produce some eggs at least? I would say about six. And you probably need, if you're going to buy babies that are too young to sex, you need to probably think about more like 12 and you have to cull males when they get there and you don't really need to keep a male unless you want to breed your own. But if you had if you had 12... You could do two two two-by-two cages with six birds in each, and you'd be fine. You'd be absolutely fine. And if you had six females, by the time it was over with, just six females, for the majority of their first laying career, until they molt the first time, they're going to give you six eggs a day. That's equivalent to about one chicken egg, one-and-a-half chicken eggs, somewhere between one and and one-and-a-half chicken eggs. So then you have to ask yourself, is that enough to make it worth... Your time to do this now. If you're just getting your feet, wet, what you're saying is, I don't want to be in over my head. I, I don't want to, you know, if I if I mess up and I kill a couple of birds, I want it to only be a few birds I can kill. Then you know, the, the, the kind of a six laying bird operation kind of makes sense to me. It's a bit light. It's a it's a bit light. It, it, I I would say that you know, kind of the average suburbanite wants two to four laying chickens if they want eggs. That's, that's kind of a, a general number of people go with small-scale chickens in suburbia if they're allowed to do it. Okay, that's going to give you two to four eggs a day. If we take that to, to quail's eggs, we need to be getting somewhere between like eight to 16. So, you know, if you're around that dozen head count, you're, you're kind of right in that realm. And that seems to make more sense for me. But you could do whatever you want. I would tell you that I don't think they're going to be happy with one. They do like to be together. You can certainly overstock them. We'll talk about stocking density is another question. But they do like to be together. I have my birds right now at about 8 to a 2 by 2 A little tighter than I would like, but they're fine. And if I go out there and it's any time where they're not running around, eating, playing, and doing stuff, if they're actually all down, they're all occupying in that four square feet less than one square foot. They all go together. They like to be together, so I wouldn't ever do a quail. Or if I did four quail, I wouldn't put four quail in four cages. I would definitely do, you know, it's just easier to do, but I also think they're going to be happier together. Though I will say, as we've culled males, the little bit of problems we've had with them pecking each other and things like that went away. Too many males can be a problem. But since they're useless eaters, unless you're using them for breeders, then that's usually not going to be an issue either. So that's where I would go with that one. Next question, what is the optimal stocking density? How dense is too dense? The Internet says one, squ- one quail per square foot, which would be four quail in a two-by-two. Two. And even people that say it, don't do it. I see people all the time that quote that in forums and stuff like that. And then they, they have, you know, four girls in and in a male in each cage. And all the cages are two-by-twos, which is a pretty standard. So they've already said four to a cage and put five in and they, then you ask them, they say, well, it's, it's okay. If you go with eight to a two by two, you got one quail in half a square foot. I think that's a lot different. Think about this. Then putting, if you had a single square foot and you put four in there. So I think if you get up to at least a two by two cage or larger, you can kind of go into that one quail per half square foot and it'll be okay. Though it may not be okay. You may have birds that fight. You may have birds that, and if you have that, you need to either take the one that's being bullied and, and, and try swapping it to another group and seeing if it works, or if it doesn't, then you need to cull that animal. There's something about that animal that's triggering that. Because I've had, you know, eight in a cage and one's being picked on. And you take that one out and you take one from another cage and you flip it over and no problem. Also, the ones that I've seen get picked on the most, the absolute most, Uh, are the males, and it's because they're overbreeding the females, and if he's outnumbered eventually, the girls get tired of it, and they start pecking back, and they may gang up on him. And almost every bird that I've had that's been pecked to where it's got some blood on it or something, in the end, I've determined it was a male. I think it was only one female that I saw any of that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying my experience thus far, that's what it's been. It's been the males that seem to get picked on more, and I've heard a lot of people say my male's getting picked on. So you need to have like an isolation area or you need to be willing to call. Um, just that, that's what, what I've learned so far. Um, optimal density. I think one quail per square foot is really a great density. I, I really do. And I think you can scale that up and you can scale that down. So, you know, if you had two square feet, two quail would probably be fine as a breeding cage. Though most of the time when I see people that do, Keep breeders, you know, they, they'll if they're even going to do a controlled pair, and you might want to do that because I specifically want this male and this female, right? And I want to know that's what I have, so now I'm going to put two. Usually, still stick with a two by two, just because the density can be handled doesn't mean the the overall restraint. I don't think I like the idea of two quail in a twelve by twelve. I, I'd rather have six in a two by two than two in a twelve by twelve it's a lot more space. It doesn't sound like it. it, only sounds like it's a little bit bigger, but you've gone from a square foot to four square feet. And that's kind of my minimum size. And it's not something I'm in love with. And I don't, I'm not in love with the idea of shoving quail in a cage. I think there's better ways to do it, but I'll say from my ending, why I think you shouldn't write it off is something you can do. Um, so that that's, that's my opinion on that. Um, how would you set up quail in a rack system or a garage-style system? Again, how would you set up quail in a, in a rack system or garage-style system? Uh, I think it would be great for you to look at uh, a video that, that Brad Davies sent me today of how his system set up. It's all hand-built, um, and it's basically stacked, and they're 12 inches tall, and they're basically two-by-twos, and the birds are in there. Uh, but the basics is that you want to make sure that you're that you're setting up a system where you're not overstocking the density of your quail, You want to make sure inside your cages you can deliver them, again, food and water and calcium supplementation in the form of uh, oyster shell. That's important because you're going to be feeding them a game bird ration. They need higher protein, and that generally doesn't come infused with calcium. I haven't found a game bird layer that has the protein uh, level, or the protein level that these quail really need, which is going to be somewhere between twenty-four and twenty-eight percent. Twenty-six kind of being considered the sweet spot, because if you take them down to a layer ration at like eighteen percent, they don't lay well. They need that higher protein; they're a different bird. Um, so, in a garage system, what I want to make sure I can do is have pans to catch their waste, and this is what I've learned. They throw shit everywhere. They make a mess. So what you want to do is you want to affix your feeders so that they're on the outside of the cage, and whatever mesh you're using, you cut out enough of it so that they can stick their head through to the feed, and they can't just get in there and dig it. The next thing is do not fill their feeders to the top. Do not fill their feeders to the top. Do not fill, got it? If it's filled to the top where they can rake it, and rake it out and into the cage and through the bottom. That's what they'll do until they've raked it down to where they have to stick their heads down to get into it. Uh, You want to stay at least a quarter inch to a half inch from the top of the feeder so the bird has to stick his head and down into it, and that will help a great deal. I think it makes a lot of sense to automate watering. That's in Brad Davies' video, but there's uh, these little cups that you can do that with, and we'll talk about automating water in a bit. But it's just basically... It's the, way, it's the easiest way because so many people are doing it that way. My best advice would be go and search for quail rack system on Google and just start looking at what other people have done. And it's, it's really not hard. It's actually the one that requires the least amount of thought because there's so many people already doing it. You can just follow whatever somebody's doing and fit it into your size. Okay. Now, one person did ask me about doing this and said that, it, that his cages would only be about a foot deep. I really don't like that. I think if you're going to do this, you want to be able to have your cages be minimum two by two. I know they make them smaller. I know they do. I know they do. I know they do. To me, you can do it. You can look at other rack systems. You can look at the sizes of them. And you can just make your your dimensions, You know, instead of being deep and narrow, you can make them narrow and wide. Or what I'm saying, uh, shallow and wide. And you can do it if you want to. But and I won't crap on you for it, I won't say oh that's evil, you're murdering the quail, whatever. But I am just telling you, two by two, figure out how to make that work. And then you know, stick with groups of somewhere between five and eight in that dimension. That doesn't mean you have to do that when you're growing them out. And we'll try to talk about how that works in some other questions as well, but there is a big difference in how big a quail is when it's three weeks old and how big it is when it's six weeks old. And you can go to higher densities during grow out, and as you're identifying and culling your males, your density's dropping. I don't have a problem with that either. Um, Brad said he wouldn't have a problem in a 2x2 two two for growing out meat only to six weeks with as many as 16 to a 2x2. Two two. I wouldn't really want to do that. Around 12 is where I went, and I had no problems up till about six weeks, and then I started having them pecking each other. And again, once the males came out and we went down about eight to a cage, everybody's happy. So take that with a grain of salt. I'm not a dictator in this. I'm not telling you how to do and what not to do. I'm telling you what I've learned so far. And I have less than a year of of practical hands-on experience with quail at this point. So I reserve the right to be wrong, but that's where I'm at with it. Okay, so then the next question is, how would you set up quail caging but do it outdoors? What I would really tell you to do is if you're going to do this outdoors, I would not set them in a stacked situation, though I'll give you a way to do it if you wanted to in, in just a second. And then I would only stack them too high. I think the best way to do quail outdoors is very similar to the way you see rabbits being done. And, and I want to say something about that a, a little bit now as we're, again, how would we set up quail in caging but outdoors? There is this ferment of people that some that are being nasty about it, some that are just concerned like can I really put a quail in a cage and and, and it be you know good and nice and safe and happy for the quail and, and and you know it's like some evil thing of caging this quail that's been bred to be in a cage for 2,000 years. Um, people do it with rabbits all the time and no one gets upset. Say it again people do it with rabbits all the time nobody gets upset. They set up rabbits. They put stuff underneath them. They have pans to, to deal with you know whatever falls out, or they just go to the ground into a compost situation or whatever. People do it with rabbits all the time. And that's pretty much what I would emulate. If I wanted to do caging outdoors, I would look at rabbit setups and I would do it very similar to a rabbit setup. The things you need to be concerned of when you move outdoors. wind when it's cold. Wind is the problem. John Dowie has his quail. And what he calls a Quail Dome 3000, whatever that is, which I think is basically like um, a small version of a greenhouse made out of the uh, cattle panels. So I'm using it for my aviary, but I think he can move his a little bit. And they're in they're in New Hampshire. They're okay because they're blocked from the wind. They have little like housing that they can go in. So you take like Tupperware bins inside there, and you put a little hole in it, like a little house, and they'll go in there when they need to shelter from wind. Since they're going to be in caging, you don't have that, and with your caging, you want to try to put your feed, your water, as much stuff on the outside as possible, so they maximize their floor space. So if I was going to do this outside, I would pick, I would either build kind of like a three-sided structure, or I would maybe pick like the sidewall of an outbuilding, like a shed or a garage or something like that. And I would build two walls that come out past. So now we have wind blocked in the back. We have wind blocked from the sides. The only place we're now going to have any wind problem whatsoever is from the front. I would also want to put a cover over the top. Now I've got shade. Now I've got rain protection. And once I do that, I'm going to set up my food and water, however works best for me. Though I'm going to tell you the sides and the, the sides are going to work best in that situation because if you're up against the wall trying to get to the back, which is how I have some of my stuff set up to the back because I have a rack I can just walk around the other side. So if you're going to do stuff to the rear, you want to bring them far enough away from that back wall that you can physically walk back there. And if you can do that, it won't be a problem. Otherwise, the sides, because the front, you probably want to set up your you know, way to collect eggs in the front. And if there's something on the outside of the front, it might be in the way though you can do it. And you don't need to design your caging with those nice little lift-up things to pull the eggs out. That's great. It's nice. And the nice thing about them is, since the eggs roll into there, they don't get stepped on and eventually cracked by the other birds, and they don't get pooped on. So they stay nice and clean, straight out and into your containers, no worry to washing them or anything like that, and you've got these beautiful eggs, because if you wash quail eggs, that pretty little color on them and all, it washes right off. You can wash them to almost white if you want to. So they're nice, but they're not needed. And so if you have one of those and you're feeding or watering from the front, you need to think about doing it in a way where you can still lift up and get them out of there. So if you do that, like if you put some separation between your cages, and yes, you're going to have less density then, but then you can have water on one side, food on the other side, an access point for the eggs to roll into on the front, And then underneath, you just pile up straw or wood chips. Let their droppings fall down there and do a deep letter method. So every once, maybe once a week go out or maybe twice a week because they poop more than you'd believe and just cover them over and keep doing that till you get your pile deep enough. And then you can take that off to compost. Or you could, you know, maybe let chickens or ducks run underneath there, depending on what type of situation you're in. But you pretty much handle them the way that you would rabbits. So that's how I would do caging outdoors. I would also set something up so if it would be at least so a tarp uh, or something could be put across the front to close them in if, the, if you had really windy conditions in the winter, some kind of secure way to make sure that wind's blocked. Um, with three sides and a roof, if you, if you think about your, your wind direction, you're probably not going to have a problem. And you also probably want to be able to, if possible, build it so your sides actually maybe were on hinges and could open so you have cross ventilation when it's hot. So that's how, that's the basics of how I would do caging outdoors. How would you set up quail in a quail tractor? Again, you have to make sure you have allowances for food, their water, et cetera. I would, I would be much more likely to do something with a quail tractor like set up a piece of PVC pipe with some, some uh, chicken nipples, Or you know whatever you want poultry nipples in it, and that plumb to like a five gallon bucket that can sit up on top of the cage and do that in a tractor than I would in most other environments. Though the chicken nipples would probably work in the cage outdoors as well. The problem with the nipples is they like to use them a lot, and a lot of the water ends up going down into your pans if you have a pan system. Where if you have a tractor, it just goes to the ground, and it's only going to get so muddy before you move it. If it's in a uh, if it's in uh, the cages over your deep litter, if they're doing that, the problem becomes that they are likely to put a lot of water down there. And if it's dry carbon with the quail droppings bound up, doesn't stink too bad. When it gets wet, it, it smells like really bad cat urine. I'm just saying. So you want to keep it as dry as possible. But with a tractor, you'd be more likely to be able to do that. And again, I'll save automating the water. Um, but w- for later. But one way or another, you have to make sure that they have water available. It's very important they don't run out of water, especially when it's hot out. Um, a food you know, method for feed, and I think it makes a lot of sense, again, to do a feeder on the outside of your tractor with a way for them to put their heads through. One, to minimize waste, but two, because it's out of your way when you need to get inside there and collect eggs or what have you, Okay. I would make sure that you have multiple doors on the roof that can be just opened and you can stick your hands through. I would make sure that those, if you're using hardware cloth or whatever, are somehow insulated so you're not going to scrape your arms. At any place you cut it, you need to make sure you've cut it very flush so the quail aren't going to get hurt or you do something to coat it. So one way you can coat things to be safe, you get old garden hose, you cut a piece long enough to go around the area you want to make protected, of the guard hose, you cut a slit down the center of it so it's split open, and you put you form it around that area. You can use pipe foam as well, but garden hose works really good for this. And then just tie wrap it in place, and then make sure you flush cut the tie wraps because those will cut you too if you do them wrong. And then that way, when you stick your arm through, you're not going to cut your arm. With the quail head access hole is pretty small, so you need to just do a really good job and maybe file them off if depending on what you're using for material where they can stick their heads through and get to the feed. By doing this, you can go out and replenish the feed, and if you did some sort of external water solution, as well, replenish the water without opening the cage. When you open the cage, they try to fly out. So having small doors in the roof that you can open and stick your arm in, and when your arm's through, you can reach pretty well around there, but the quail really can't fly out well, and if they do, you just kind of move your arm over and knock them back down in, is the way to go, because they will fly straight up and out. By the way, the myth that if it's more than a foot tall, they'll fly up and break their necks. I put them in a two-and-a-half-foot-high quail tractor, chicken tractor modified. I uh, 100, had 100-plus 100 birds in it. Nobody broke their neck. Nobody. They got to be where they were so tame. When I would come out to feed them, and I, I didn't have the external feeders. That's why I'm telling you to do it, if you can. And I had to get their feeders out. If they were sitting on the feeders... Even if they were empty, they were just sitting there. I had to move them off the feeders to get the feeders out. So I think this whole mythology around they're going to kill themselves if they have more than a foot to get up ahead of steam is is just that. It's mythology. Uh, I think they do fly once in a while, and they do pop themselves off the thing. But if you're raising them from young birds, they don't have as much momentum, and that problem self-correcting. How many times are you going to run into a wall before you stop doing it? So I wouldn't worry that about too much. But that's the basics of how I would do a quail tractor, and I would really focus on making it not too heavy. The reason mine was too heavy is it was a you know, modified it to do this, modified it to do that. Why build another one? So I would look at, if you're going to use, like, stud lumber, I would take a table saw, and I would take 2 by 4s and I would rip them in half, and I, that's plenty of structural integrity. I would use that as my frame, and that would reduce your weight right there by 50%, which is a lot, especially if there's like if you're doing a, a smaller tractor with 40 birds in it. Uh, and by the time those, if you're doing them for eggs, by the time those birds weigh a, a pound apiece, it's only 40 pounds, but it's 40 pounds plus what's already there, plus food, plus water, et cetera, that you're moving. So the other thing you might look at doing is you can go to like Home Depot, Lowe's and what have you, and they sell solid plastic wheels. I put wheels on my tractor, it made it so much easier to move. And they can still access the ground. They're just, they're just below grade enough that it'll roll. And the way I bu- built axles, I just drilled a hole through the side, I put a, a bolt through there, and I put a fender washer on, I bolted it, put another fender washer on, put the wheel on, put another fender washer on, and then on the last nut on the outside i use those acorn nuts with the plastic so they don't un- un- unroll and tighten it until the wheel will spin uh but it's not wobbly and you only move it one tractor length at a time so that works out really well i also got some uh like steel handles like for opening doors or for opening drawers and things like that kind of like hardware like that and put two on it on the front side so you can just kind of grab those and pull it forward And the first time I put wheels on, I only put them on the back, and you kind of lift it up and pulled it. The only reason I put four wheels on it was so so Dorothy could move it when I wasn't here. It worked really good kind of rickshaw style movement. With a quail tractor, I really recommend they have a bottom. Because you're going to kill your birds otherwise, and snakes can get up underneath it. But what you can do, for instance, if you were using like half by one material for your caging, that would be great. And then on the bottom you could cut out so you have full one-inch by one-inch holes. Yes, a snake could still get under there, but if you have a good heavy tractor, he's less likely to, and what you could do is maybe only do that in 80% of the center. Um, Also, if you don't use wheels, if you use a lighter piece of equipment, you can weight it down with something that makes it very hard for a snake to kind of get underneath there And then you take that weight off, you move your tractor, and you add the weight back on. If I had my druthers, I would do smaller rather than larger. And I would do tractors I can physically lift, even just a few inches, walk, and set back down. Because what that's going to let me do is have a bottom that's meshed, but I'm setting it down onto greenery, so a lot of it's going to stick up through. Where if I drag it, I'm kind of mowing down my grass and, and pasture. What you can do if you have to do that, you pull it all the way to where you want it. You pull it a couple inches past it and then push it a couple inches back and it'll kind of stand up the pasture. But they're going to pick through and they're going to do whatever they want to do anyway. That's the basics of how I would do a tractor. How would you do a coop and run style type of thing? Um, I think really hard about whether I needed a coop. Uh, they don't tend to like go to bed at night like that. They just kind of lay down on the ground. They're ground creatures. So I would simply build... A some sort of a structure that's like a small aviary. If you're not going to be moving and it, it's more like a coop and run environment, I would really look at hard at maybe using cattle panels like I'm doing with my aviary, but maybe not doing it as large scale as I am. Uh you could do uh eight foot wide by uh about twelve feet long and just build a version of Texas Southern Prepper's uh greenhouse. And you can look that up online and see how people have modified that and then cover that with hardware cloth. You could do a wood frame. You can do whatever you want. But once you do that, I would want to make that something I can walk inside and pretty much stand up. If i got a slump, a little fine, but I want to be able to walk in there. I would think really hard about doing at least two sections so they can move back and forth. And I would build some excluder frames. So all you have to do to build an excluder frame Let's take some two-by-four and make a square. On top of it, put a piece of hardware cloth or one-by-two or whatever, something that they can't get inside of. And remember, they're pretty small birds. And then you put that on the ground inside your area, and you exclude them from a certain area. And then you can move that, and then they can access that area, and you allow another area to recover. Inside of there, and this is kind of what John's done with his Quell Dome 3000, I'd love to see a picture of that uh, from the outside is you know you put in some little housing where they can get sheltered from the wind. And, I mean, that's kind of, I'm really just going to answer the next question because you're just going to do what I'm going to do on a smaller scale. So I've also got a lot of questions. How exactly is my, what I'm calling a rotational aviary going to work? So I looked at tractoring and said, you know what, I don't want to tractor. At least not 365 days a year. And I'll talk about how tractoring fits into seasonal rearing uh, in a bit for meat, uh, even meat and eggs, and then not doing anything in the winter. But since I'm going to go through the winter, I want a place with power. I want a place where I can plumb water in. I want pl- and I want something that's fun- multifunctional. I don't just want it to be for quail. So the way my aviary is going to work, and I'm going to give the abbreviated version. I'll put a link in the show notes for this show that goes through the entire process, for those who haven't heard it. But basically, it's going to be in three sections. Each section is 10 feet wide by 16 foot long. Across the top, so that the whole thing is going to be arched with cattle panels. Those cattle panels will then be covered with hardware cloth, quarter-inch hardware cloth. It's going to cost about 250 bucks to do that, just in hardware cloth. I think it's worth doing, because now the birds are protected. There will be a door on each main end. And then there'll be two internal doors that break it into three sections. So you have a basically a 50-foot, it's really 48-foot long structure, but three 16-foot sections of 160 square feet apiece inside them. Those are being filled with dirt. And then there's shelving being placed on both sides. In the summer, it'll be covered with 60% shade cloth. In the winter, we haven't decided yet, we may actually sort of pseudo-greenhouse it with greenhouse film. Uh, That'll help keep them warm. On the shelves, one set of shelves is going to grow baby greens and sunflower greens that are a human product, so for us to sell. The other shelf, we're going to use the microgreen trays and just cheap dirt, because we're basically growing sod. Into each of those trays, we're going to put a seed mix. What exactly? I don't know. We'll figure it out. What they like, what grows well, what does well different times a year. That's the thing. Is since we can do this rotationally, uh, we can try different things. But, obviously, low-cost things like uh, annual ryegrass grows really fast. And they're only going to trash it anyway. But we'll do some clovers and some oats and some wheat and amaranth and all the different cover crops we talk about. Because the trays are just under a foot wide, they're like 11 inches wide, you could fit about 17 on a shelf. So every shelf in the back will have 17 trays of basically what you would think of as a sod. That sod will have a three-week grow-out process because the birds will be in there when they're filled and they can be laid down after they leave and they'll grow for another two weeks before the birds come back. So each section, the birds will be in for seven days. It could end up being 10 days. It could end up being six days. It could end up being 15 days. I don't know yet. I don't know yet. Each, Each section will have a feeding station, and a watering station that actually will be portable, so I only need one. I only need one. When the birds need to move to the new section, I take their feeders, they move, take the water, and it moves. I'll probably just use, I'll hang buckets from the shelf with chicken nipples in there. They can make it wet, I don't care. It's fine. It's deep littered, it's got all this pasture going, that's fine. As long as they use them effectively, that's what we'll do. Otherwise, we'll find something different if that doesn't work well for them. That means I can fill up a five-gallon bucket. I can fill up two of them, and they got 10 gallons. They can probably go a week on that. And I don't have to worry about them crapping in their, their, their food or, or whatever. You can use on a smaller scale and do one if you wanted to do it you know, for what we talked about previously. And and that's the basics of it. If you want to know more about it, go listen to the episode that's in the show notes, and you can you can learn about it there. But what that's going to let us do is p- produce multiple yields. We're also going to take the fifteen gallon um, cement mixer uh, trays that you can buy at like Home Depot, or I think are like twelve bucks, and those will be a compost bin. So so they don't get too wet and nasty. Po- poke a couple little small holes with a drill in the bottom of them. Set them in there, and all kinds of scraps and stuff like that from the kitchen go in there the quail go in there uh and, and play around so that they'll have a dust bath we'll take another uh cement mixer tray but the shallower ones we will add sand to that and diametaceous earth and then they can go in there and they can dust with that and it helps control insects and what have you and when they've kind of really messed that up you just dump that into the compost bin add a little more sand and what have you when the birds leave a section we lay the sod down from the 17 trays, start 17 new trays. So they're going to have two weeks before those trays, and then another week while they're in there, and then those trays go down. So every three weeks, 17 squares of sod go down. Um, the other thing that we'll be doing with that is I'll build those excluders that I talked about. So frames with hardware cloth on them. So, you know, 30% of the ground will be completely protected. For a 42-day super cycle, so they'll have to come back second time before they can get all the way to the ground on that. Plus, you have uh, another that's a little bit more than a square foot per tray. It's like a foot and a half. So call it call it another 20 square feet that are actually being resotted on those cycles as well. And, and that's the basics of how that will work. So the birds will go to the next section. There'll be a recovery period of 14 days. Um, but there will also be that longer recovery period of the excluded areas, and the sod will obviously be put in the areas they use the most. Uh, the food and water will move to, to encourage them to move. And I think what I'm going to use for additional sheltered housing is I'm just going to get some Rubbermaid tubs and cut holes in them because I've seen other people do it and it works. So you move everything to the new section so you take the resources away. So in, in a very short period of time, there's all this new growth, all their food, all their water, everything they want is going to be in a new section. The other thing that I probably will do is on the bottom of the shelving on one side, I'll take the, the plastic uh, roofing material like the Tuftex and I'll put that under there so that water you know, hits that and kind of sheds off to the rear and it doesn't go straight down under. That will give them a little bit of wa- full weather protection from rain. And that will also let me mount some heat lamps under there in the colder weather so there is some supplemental heat since there will be power to it. So that's, that's the basics of that. Uh, next situation, how can you automate watering? Uh, again, chicken nipples are probably what I'm going to do outside. In a rack system, there's these little cups, and I'll put a link to where you can find them. You know, the only place i found to buy them is from, a, I think it's called Beak Time, is the name of the, the guy that sells them, is Beak Time is the company. They don't have a site, though. They only sell on eBay. I learned about them from Brad Davies, and you can set them plumbed in, and you have this little cup that's inside the cage. That's the only thing that's inside the cage because the food's on the outside of the cage. So it takes up this little bitty area, and then they just peck at it, and there's a little lever in there. Whenever they peck it, the cup fills with water. And that's that's probably a lot cleaner solution than nipples in a cage. So that's... And there's a video that Brad sent me today. I'll just give you a link to it, and you can go look at it. And that's, that's going to be my answer to that question. That's how I would automate watering in a cage. Again, in a chicken tractor, I would look at probably taking a piece of PVC pipe plumb to a bucket that sits on the top and chicken nibbles on that. Or the other thing you could do, these little cups have a plastic threaded thing that you could put a, a piece of tubing over. I see no reason that you couldn't drill a hole in a piece of PVC pipe that's the right size for that thing and basically tap it into there and maybe seal it with a little silicon and have four or five of these cups attached to a pipe, and then that pipe pl- plumbed up to uh, a, a, a water reserve. But I haven't done any of that yet, so I'm, I'm kind of just spitballing that one there. But there's lots of ways to do that. That's a good thing to go look at forms and actually see what other people have done. Um, how can quail be integrated into a composting system? So how can quail be integrated into a composting system? I just kind of talked about how I'm going to do that. So if you have any kind of an aviary or a run or sometimes in the world of pigeons they call it a fly where they can kind of run around in there, you can just have a bin that you put food scraps and stuff into and they will get in there and they will jack around with it. They will not do it to the level chickens well. They, they just won't. So – one of the ways that you can actually really integrate them into a composting system is either if you're doing an rack system, you're going to have to change out the, the the litter trays and you just compost that. If you're doing it outside caging, you do it rabbit style. You put a bunch of carbon down there, you let it fall on it, and when you accumulate enough of it, then you move it out and you compost it. That's probably the best way to do it because it's an easy way to accumulate up to like a meter. And I think if you're if you're just adding carbon whenever you need to, you're going to have a pretty good carbon-nitrogen ratio right there. You can throw some other stuff in your pile, but if you just take deep litter of straw or wood chips that's been collecting uh, quail manure until it's a, a cubic meter, and you put that into a pile and wet it down as you build that into a pile, it's going to cook, and it's, it's going to cook well. If you're doing tractoring... Then basically you just move them wherever you want nutrient, and, and I would try to not put them in the same spot any more than, let's say, once every four months, and six would be better. When Joel Salton does it with the chickens, he says once they're in a spot, they do not come back for a full year. That spot never gets used again for a year, and that's probably the best way to go. But depending on how big your area is, how many birds you're doing, how large your tractors are, and, and what you have available that may or may not be possible. And frankly, if I have an area with really deep, beautiful grass, but they've been there this year, I'll put them back into it if it's well recovered. Um, so that w- and really, you're not composting then; you're going direct improvement. But there's probably a lot of other ways that we can integrate quail into composting systems. We can certainly, and I, I think maybe the, the highest use of quail manure is a worm bin. You're gonna go to from a good compost to a premium compost, and I think it makes most sense for the suburbanite raising quail. Because while you can do them in larger numbers like I'm gonna do if you have land, if you have a person with say two dozen quail in a in a, a three sided cage type, you know, outdoor system or in a garage, and you're collecting waste, it's not that much waste on a you know, a daily basis. Uh, With six cages for me, it's about a half a wheelbarrow full once a week. If I was giving, you know, if I every uh, seven, you know, one seventh of that to a good size worm bin, by the next day they'll wipe it out and you put another seventh in. And by the time you're out of that wheelbarrow, you're doing it again. And the worms are going to convert it very, very quickly into extremely high quality worm castings and worm compost. And they're also going to produce worm juice, which is a great inoculant as well. So I think that if you have small, so when I say small, I mean somewhere between, you know, let's say, 40 birds or less, that the best composting system, if you're collecting the waste in pans uh, or they're just dropping down to a ground uh, carbon source, is going to be worm bins. Because that way you can do small amounts over a long period of time. And worms are better for that. Uh, than you know doing compost turning and stuff like that. If you're gonna do that, you need to keep it dry until you have enough to make it worth building a pile. And now if you have other sources of material, then it kind of you'll have enough to do it, do it faster. But I, I'm with Jeff Lawton. If you have less than a cubic meter of material, a hot compost pile doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You're kind of in that situation where you don't have enough ingredients to do the baking of the cake. And if you add to a pile before it's done, it's kind of like you bake the cake fifty percent of the way and then you add more batter. So highest use worm composting system. Okay, the next question is how can I free range quail? Uh or use something like an electronet system so I can I can make them live the life they're supposed to live. You know, why can't you free range quail or use an electronet system? Because quail fly. Because they fly is the first reason. So if you were to take your, your little court and quail and uh, put them out in your backyard, even if you had a pretty big space, um, they're just going to kind of go all over the place. They're not really going to be organized uh, flock style like chickens are. They're not homeable. They're not going to come back every night to go to a certain place to go to sleep. You could try it if you want to, but it's not likely. And they do fly. I mean, they're nowhere near the... Uh, the equivalent to like a Bob White or something, because they've been bred so long to basically be this domestic animal, but they can fly over fences and disappear. Everything eats them. I know you think everything eats chicken, but what if a chicken never got any bigger than a coffee cup? I mean, they are a chicken has that kind of danger zone where you got to be a little bit more protective of them, but once they get to full size, they're pretty fast and they're a little bit bigger, and not everything eats them, or everything eats quail. They, they, they're probably going to kill themselves if you try to use Electronet to contain them. They're, they're pretty small. When you raise chickens with Electronet, they actually have to get to a certain size before it's safe to use Electronet with them, and, and quail aren't much bigger than, than the kind of borderline place where these chickens probably shouldn't be there. And I mean, if you look at commercial breeders that breed things for game farms like Bob White Quail and all, they they don't do that. They f- use large flyway aviary type design systems, like large versions multiples of what I'm building. Um, it, it just it just doesn't work. It's never worked for anybody that I know. of. If anybody's doing it successfully, I'd love to see it. But it's just you just have to get your head out of that world and realize you're dealing with a different animal here there's a there's a there's there's practical ways to raise something like a goat there's a little bit different to do a sheep it's a little bit different to do a chicken it's a little bit different to do a duck they, they don't all work the same way You're, you you no one can show me a place where someone's doing a a leader follower holistic management grazing system and quail are being followed behind ducks and electronet or something like that it, it just it did not work oh well, you'd probably put the duck behind the quail because when you do move a quail tractor the duck comes in and eats the quail shit immediately which is pretty nasty stuff really uh, you're not going to like dealing with quail poo at all it it, it does have a smell um and it, it is messy it, it does it's wet um and it needs to be, be in carbon and become as dry and stay as dry as possible to be manageable uh, so it just doesn't work, in my opinion. Next question: uh, How can you deal with mosquitoes and flies around your quail? And the guy that sent this one was talking specifically about mosquitoes, and said that you know he knows this big cloud of mosquitoes around the uh, the quail, and you know he knows that I would say something like, "Don't let the mosquitoes breed." You know, make sure you get rid of all the water, and that's all good and well. But he lives near a swamp, and it's got water, standing water year round. Um, I, I don't really know what to tell you there other than a, a couple things I could suggest. At least the closest edges of that swamp that's on this guy's land you could probably throw dunks in there though. that might get expensive, the, the BT dunks that will help control your mosquitoes. Encourage natural predators like dragonflies putting in some garden ponds. Uh, they're kind of protected and, and you can maybe find a place where you can find dragonfly nymphs and start inoculating those to get things kicked off it because dragonflies tear the heck out of mosquitoes. As far as flies, the quail will eat them. I mean, so the flies probably won't be as much of a problem. Um, A lot of people say that quail, you know, they only eat seeds and grains, and they don't, no, no. Um, For some reason, one day, quite a few of the bees were attracted to the quail cages, and they were going on the quail litter, and the pans are not that far from the bottom of the cage where the quail can kind of peck down to where the litter falls. And man, every, every bee that went in there went through the gauntlet and several of them didn't make it. So they'll probably eat the quail and the mosquitoes both, but I, I really can't tell you exactly how to deal with the mosquitoes, um, other than, you know, normal control methods. Uh, the one thing I do know that kills flying insects dead is lemongrass oil at 2% to water. And if you set up a misting system around your is on a timer uh, with a, with an infusion of, again, 2% lemongrass oil, not lemon oil, lemongrass oil, uh, to 98% water on a high-pressure mist, uh, every single mosquito that gets hit with a droplet of that is dead as a doornail. And the only thing it's going to do for your quail is flavor their feed. It will not hurt them. It will not hurt you. It is completely non-toxic. And uh, it, it's something I really want to – I wanted to do it last year, and I didn't. And this year, I really want to get it set up in my, my duck house because we do get a lot of flies in there in our spring. And, uh, you know, I've used this organic uh, insect spray. And it works good, but you got to go out there and spray it, and it's kind of expensive. And it only works on contact. It has no residual uh, effect. But when I looked up what it was, that's all it is, its 2% lemongrass oil. So it seems like you could make an awful lot of that pretty cheap and put that through a misting system. So that would be my only real way to control flying insects around poultry uh, with some type of uh, insecticide that's not really an insecticide. It, 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 it's, and what I mean by that is let's say I, I sprayed lemongrass oil on my plants. I, I wouldn't hurt any insects unless I got it on them when I initially sprayed it. So the residue is completely non-toxic to everything. Um, but flying insects, when, when the mist gets on them, it eats into their body and kills them dead. And it kills them quick. The next question is, could you do quail seasonally and not keep them through the winter? Because um, they just don't want to, for some reason or another. You absolutely could. And it may be perfect for some people. Let, let's imagine how we might do this. Let's say we wanted a really big yield of quail, and we were going to get somebody in this situation specifically, to hatch uh, quail for us so that we didn't have to do it ourselves. So what we could do is we could build ourselves for, let's say, if we wanted to do 100 quail, uh, we, we might eventually need to get them into, let's say, four chicken tractors. But even if we're going to do our own brooding, and I'll talk more about brooding in a bit with another question, I'm a big fan of not using a brooder box unless you absolutely have to. So we could put 100 of them, easily into, let's say, um, a a, a 3x5 tractor, which would be pretty movable and manageable instead of a 4x8 like I have, which is kind of unwieldy. So a 3x5 tractor, 100 quail in 15 square feet. Okay, hold on. At, At this point, while we're brooding them, they are the size of a golf ball. If we had them in a brooder box, they would be in a probably a much smaller box. And there's a reason for that because we make sure everybody stays where they need to be and warm and dry and whatever. But then what we would do is we put our 100 little babies in there and we cover it with a tarp to block the wind. And we leave one side of it open for airflow or maybe two sides of it for airflow that are not where the strongest winds are. And we put a heat lamp in there at an angle, so that kind of skips across the tarp. And we use the silver side of the tarp on the inside. And if it's cold enough, we run that heat lamp during the day. But probably by the end of the first week, we don't have to anymore. And we keep those birds in there till they're two weeks old. They're probably going to be much hardier than if they'd been kept in in a regular quail cage. So at the end of those two weeks... We take our our quail and we, we cut them in half. We take and we go 50 and 50 and now we're in two tractors. And they're still not fully grown yet. And that way if we do have to do heat lamps or whatever and tarping, we're only dealing with two instead of four cages. So it's less work. And now we grow them out till about four weeks. And now we split them in half again. Now we got got four, four tractors with 25 birds each. You could go much higher density than this. So, what if we, we get our guy to, to provide us with 140 chicks? We do the same bifurcation. By the time we get to week six, and these birds are close to full size, we call all our males. Because we're not hatching our own. We're not doing this year round. We're doing this seasonally. We call all our males. If we end up with a lot of females, maybe we have a hundred females out of those 140, we're lucky, but we call 40 males. We call our 40 males, we slaughter them, we process them, we package them, we freeze them, we can them, we do whatever we're going to do with them. We eat some of them, we have a quail barbecue. Now we're left with 100 females. At, at about six to seven weeks, we've got 100 females split up in four tractors. They're 25 to a tractor. You could do this with caging too. I'm just giving you a way to do it in a really cool way. Okay. Now we have our 100 quail, 25 to a tractor. We're moving our tractors through our system. We're going to collect eggs every day. We're going to eat all the fresh eggs we want. Maybe we seasonally sell some eggs and things like that. All our surplus eggs. We're going to get our quail cracking tool. We're going to get a great big bowl. And we're going to make a huge bowl of of scrambled eggs every couple weeks. We're going to take the scrambled eggs. We're going to pour them into an ice tray. We'll take the ice tray and put it in the freezer. Once they're frozen, we'll crack the ice tray. We're going to take a dozen quail egg ice cubes. Put them into a Ziploc-style uh, bag that's also a vacuum seal bag. So they make these vacuum seal bags that once you cut them open, you can reseal them with a, a Ziploc-style, uh, but they're vacuum sealed until you do that. Okay? Cabela sells them. Vacuum seal them, and they're a dozen eggs, basically, a dozen chicken egg equivalent per package. Stack those in our freezer until we have enough to make it through whatever our is going to be for us. When well, we're happy that we've had enough fresh eggs, and we, we've put enough eggs up, and everything, everybody's happy, we kill all our quail, process them to meat, and put them away. Or when we think, eh, we're pretty much there, we kill half our quail. Now we're only moving two tractors every day, so we put 50 quail up. We still have about 40 to 50 eggs a day coming out of them. We sell, collect, do whatever we want till we get to the end of that cycle. And then when we get to a point where we're like, we're done with eggs, and I don't want to do this work anymore this year, we kill them. If I wanted to do a second cycle... I talk to my guy, I figure out when all my birds are going to be dead by, and I only need six weeks to get to meat size. So I could do one more meat cycle, another hundred birds, into fall, and when they're you know six to eight weeks old, since I'm not looking for eggs out of them this time, I just kill them all. I could run them like meat chickens. I mean, think about that, too. I could go out, if I'm only going to graze them to six weeks of age... In a three by five, I wouldn't even a three by five tractor. I wouldn't even sweat thirty birds. It's a half square foot of bird. I I wouldn't even sweat it. So I built four tractors. I I I put all of them in there as a brooder, and I, I brood them in a tractor. So they're used to that environment. As they get bigger, I keep breaking them up into more and more tractors. I raise them to six weeks, and I kill them. I don't want to do that many birds. Okay, at six weeks, I kill all the biggest birds I have. At seven weeks, you know, what I do is I say, you know, seven us 100 just to make the round numbers. At six weeks, I look at them and I go, here's my 25 biggest birds, I'm going to slaughter those. At seven weeks, I do it again. At eight weeks, I do it again. At nine weeks, I'm do done for the year. I did 100 birds, put them away, just like tractor chickens. You can, you can do this as seasonally as you want to with meat and eggs or just meat if that's what you want to do. It would really be a good idea, though, to have a local person to do your hatching for you. That's one way to do it. You could do them in caging the same way. You could set up that outdoor caging system we talked about or an indoor caging system. You can grow out your meat birds that you source them somewhere else, and then there's there's always a the hybrid. It doesn't have to be 100%. Let's think about it this way. Let's say I wanted to produce my own birds. Well, a good ratio would be about four females to a male, or five females to a male, somewhere in there. And I'm producing fertile eggs that I can hatch if I want to get into hatching. And how many of those pairs do I need to restock myself in the spring? If I have five girls to a male, I might be a little worried about fertility. So let's go four girls to a male. So five birds to a cage, two cages indoors. That's it. And i got eight girls. They give me eight eggs a day. I can save my eggs for about 10 days before I put them into the incubator all at the same time and get them to hatch pretty close to each other. So 80 eggs go into the incubator, and I've only had to keep 10 birds through the winter in two cages inside. Not a lot of work. And if I put lighting in there and make sure they have everything they need, they'll still give me eggs through the winter. So I can run a small group as breeded stock through the winter, and produce meat stock to run outside in the spring, summer, and fall. You can do it as seasonally as you want, as on and off as you want. In fact, it is probably one of the best things you could do, uh, because one of the best things you could do that way is quail, because they are such a fast grow out. You can slaughter quail at six weeks. So if you have a local hatcher that would hatch for you, and do what my guy does, which is if I want them, they're a dollar a bird. If I want them to hold them for two weeks, they're two dollars a bird. He charges me a dollar to take care of them for two weeks. About two weeks, I can put them outside. I don't care what anybody says. I did it. It worked. They were fine. I only have four weeks to slaughter, and if I want them to get a little bit bigger at seven weeks. I got five weeks, thirty-five days. If I do a hundred that way, I can process them all in about three hours. Now that's not packaging and everything. That's processing. If, if I wanted to do it again, I could do it six, seven, and eight week processing time and do a third each time. It's only 30 minutes to do about 30 of them. If, if I want, I can have quail, a quail cookout and have people come over and learn and maybe cook 24, 25 of them and put up another 100 and get people to help me. Many hands make a lot of work. So you could certainly do them seasonally. Next question I get. Over and over, what do I feed my quail? What do I personally feed my quail? Um, for my primary feed, I use a product called Texas Naturals feed. It is a non-soy, non-GMO product. It's not 100% organic, uh, but but I, you know, I mean I know the source. And these guys are dealing with natural growers. A lot of their material comes from uh, growers who are transitioning to organic, and they're in the donut hole. So once you decide you 're going to go organic, you have to go through organic processes on a field that 's been conventionally farmed for four years before you can call it organic so there 's people in that donut hole, and, and Darby gets a lot of his feed from buying and then making his own feed that way. but I actually Darby Simpson i 'm talking about from our expert council but what what Texas naturals does is that 's one of the sources and it 's not all one hundred percent organic and it 's not all one hundred percent you know what we would want, but it 's the best quality feed I can find. That gives me the two things that are most important to my customers, and that is no soy and no GMO. And you can, a lot of times, find organic feed for what we're paying, but not no soy. Because the soy is the main way they get the protein content up. And, and quail need higher protein, as I said before, so that they'll lay well. They, they, they need more protein than a chicken does. So you're gonna pay more for the feed. I pay like twenty six dollars a bag for my feed. If I bought conventional feed, it's twelve fifty. I pay more than double. But with eggs selling at even four dollars a dozen, it's it doesn't it, it it's not even a concern financially. It's 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 far more profitable than chicken or ducks per unit. Okay, you'd have to have an awful lot of them. To, to, to kind of, you know, have a full time income or anything, but as a hobby income, as a, 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 an animal that pays for itself plus gives you product, it, it's very, very hard to beat them. But Texas Natural, non soy, non GMO, it's 28% protein, uh, and the primary um, uh, protein meal in there is peanut. And you can look it up, and I'll put a link in the show notes to Texas Natural's feeds, and you can see all the other stuff they have. So you may not be able to get that in your area, but to me, that's, that's what my customers care about. I've had customers ask, are you guys organic? Are you organic? And when we explain we're not organic, we have no interest in being organic as far as you know the label, but here's what we feed our animals. What most people are looking for today is they don't want soy, especially people with egg allergy sensitivities. Don't want soy because a lot of times the soy phytoestrogens pass through in the ovum of the egg, and, and people have problems with eggs, but if they get a non-soy egg, they have less problems. If they get a non-soy egg that's quail or duck, they even have less problems than a chicken egg that's non-soy and, and, and non-GMO. So that's what we've done, and when we've explained it, it's we've never lost a customer because we weren't going organic. By all means, if you can get an organic feed, go ahead. I don't really have a local source of a good organic feed at this protein percentage, and it's not a cost issue because I can't see it costing more than $26 a bag. I mean, that's a little more than 50 cents a pound. And it's a a premium that's actually hard to justify putting in a chicken. But the quail, because they sell as a premium product, you sell chicken eggs for $6 a dozen, you're lucky. But you can sell a quail egg for $4 a dozen all day long if you develop a market for it, okay? Uh, because there is a market, and that's that's what it's by and large selling for across the country. Another question I've had is, why do quail get prolapse, uh, where they they end up with basically their inside on the outside, they end up with an egg bound up around their butt, or even if they pass the egg, it ends up on the outside. It's very bad, and usually a bird doesn't survive. Uh, it Sometimes they do, but really it's kind of cold time when that happens. Uh, Or why do I get weak-shelled eggs? And I put these two together because it's the same answer, calcium deficiency. So one of the big issues that quail have is that they need that higher protein feed, and most of your higher protein feeds are not considered layer feeds, and therefore they don't come with additional calcium. So our layer formula that we feed our ducks has 3% calcium, whereas the the game bird starter that we feed our quail does not have the, uh, the calcium ed- addition. So what we do is we just give them free choice oyster shells, and that seems to work. And I was a little worried they wouldn't be able to eat the big chunks, but they seem to be going crazy on it, so they're, they're fine. Um, I tried grinding the oyster shells in a coffee grinder. Uh, don't do that. It, 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 it burned it up really fast. I thought it would be better if it was just a little finer for them, and I'm looking for maybe a affordable, more finely grinded uh, type of calcium, but I don't think I really need it, but I just kind of want to see if I can find it. Um, so that's one of the big things that you have to make sure is that you're, they're getting enough calcium, and it's a direct, it's a direct result of the feed that you generally can find for them with high enough protein not having it. And if you tried something like, well, I'm going to take this layer ration and mix it half and half with my game bird ration. Well, I'm going to cut my protein. I'm going to dilute my protein load. So that's one of the big things. That's the next one. What special needs do quail have diet wise? What what do they eat? Well, they eat everything. I mean, that a chicken eat. If a chicken eats it, a quail will eat it. Is what I've seen so far. They're not as big on the whole scraps things as chickens are, but they love. Green vegetation, especially young, small green vegetation. Um, as far as special dietary requirements, they need the protein count we've talked about several times now, and they need calcium. Those are two really big things. Uh, so that's, they really don't have any special needs, but if you want healthy quail, you got to make sure you have the protein and the calcium that they're looking for. Um, how do you minimize feed waste? Well, I've, I've kind of mentioned that already, but, the way you minimize feed waste with quail is you don't let them have the ability to, to to rake and spill the feed because that's what they'll do. So don't fill your feeders to the top. Make sure that they have to put their head through something to get to the feed. Those are your, your two biggest ways to minimize waste. And what I've seen people do, my, I just had to remind Dorothy, my wife, about it yesterday. We have this feeder on the back of the cage and we have holes cut in the cage and they have to stick their head through the cage to get to the feed. But she filled it all the way to the top so that they would have food forever or whatever. And as soon as she did it, man, they started raking that stuff out of there. So make them have to not just go through something but down into something so that if they move it around, it doesn't fall. So it's not that they'll do the same thing. It it just doesn't have the result of the food being dispersed. I, I don't really think it's so much that they're looking for the parts that they like. Because feeding them a game bird crumble, I don't know that there's that much difference from piece to piece. It's kind of all blended together. I think it's just a natural behavior for them to dig around in things, and then I'll pick this, and I'll dig that, and I'll pick this, and I'll dig that. And it's just that natural behavior results in all of that waste. If you need a container, like something to feed them because you don't have an outside setup yet, the chick feeders that you buy for baby chickens that are like long, like a trough, and they have little holes in them, those work great. Right now, uh, because I don't, I, I'm playing with this caging and trying to figure things out. I haven't wanted to alter it yet after Steve built it. So only one of them had the external feeder. So I haven't cut holes to put the other. So I'm using these, you know, inside the cage feeders for them right now. I have this, the, the galvanized steel ones that are about eight inches long that I used to, if you've seen the videos of my baby ducks drinking water out of them, those. And all I do is feed them about, fill them about three quarters of the way up. Don't fill them all the way up. And again, as long as they have to stick their head in the hole and they can't rake across the edge, we don't have much wasted feed that way. The problem with those and while you're going to want to get your feeder outside isn't a food waste from a throwaway thing. They poop in it, and you end up with little clumps like cat litter of your crumble. So there you go. Um, just real quick, though, before we move on from here, I did miss one thing with the dietary requirements, and this kind of applies to feed waste as well. When you have baby quail, like until they're about two to three weeks old, you may want to get that coffee ground here that I ruined and run your feed through there and cut it down to about a quarter of the coarseness. The way that game bird starter comes is a bit big for them when they're that small. I mean, it's really kind of dramatic how small they are and how fast they grow. Uh, What is the best breeding ratio of males to females? I kind of mentioned that. A lot of people do four to one. A lot of people do three to one. You can do five. And it's not a problem. Here's why people tend that do this for a living not to go to 5 to 1. 5 to 1 works. 6 to 1, not so good. Okay? what? Why? Why does that matter? Well, think about it this way. I have four cages that I have set up for breeders. Each cage has one male and four females. And one of my males dies. So now I take a female and move it to a cage, a female and move it to a cage, a female to move it to a cage, and I've got now five to one in three cages. I've got one spare female. Screw it. I go to one cage. I go six to one until I get a new male. If I'm already at five to one, then I need a new male to keep my breeding up. So by going a little lower with the ratio, you create a redundancy if you lose a male. If you go three to one with your breeding... And you have a you know a few breeding cages, and you you just just move your girls over until you have new boys. So that's kind of why people stick to that ratio. Next question: Can I grow all the food that my quail need to eat, and not buy any food, and not be tied to the feed store and whatever? Uh, probably not. Probably not. And I, I'm hearing from people that are kind of in the purest world with this. Like I just don't want to support agriculture. Well, that's bad because that's what you're doing. Or that like the fact that we have an input is a bad thing if it comes from off-site. Well, I mean, think about it this way. There's a lot of people in just about every state in the country that are growing different grain products. And if you want those people to grow all natural, non-GMO, organic, you know, biodynamic, whatever it is you want them to grow, then they need some place to sell that stuff to. And... Probably the best market for it for them price wise is into the premium market for animal products as feed. So if you're not there to buy it, there's no incentive for them to grow it and they might as well just keep growing Monsanto GMO corn and soy. So part of it is actually creating a market for others to sell into. And if we took this approach, then how would you get your car down the road? How would you get your car? Are you going to build your car from your backyard? I know there's some people that pretty much live 100% off the land. Most of them really scrape to be able to do it, though most of us don't. So why apply that logic to this one place? And again, I think it's because we're struggling with the fact that this animal is a little bit different than a lot of other animals. If we have large pasture, we can graze some cattle, and they can get almost all of their, their feed from the land. We're probably still going to supplement some I mean, most people that keep bees feed their bees sugar water at certain times of the year. You know, most people that keep chickens feed their... Chi- so you're probably not going to even grow the majority of what your quail are going to eat. Quail need protein. And you can say, well, I'm going to do black soldier fly larvae." Yeah, go ahead and do it and try to feed 90 quail with it. You, you, you're not going to grow enough of it. Um... There's all these things we can do to supplement that, and, and that's why we're going to be doing things like growing microgreens, basically for the quail. Growing sunflower—they love sunflower sprouts. They, they they tear them up. Now they don't like them the way the ducks do. So the ducks, I do my sprouting with my sunflowers in a bucket. The quail like when they're kind of grown up, about you know, let's say about a day or two before you'd cut them for yourself. When they're like half grown, man, they love those things. So you can do that, and that's a very easy process. You can basically get some sprouting trays uh, or some microgreen-style trays and get a great big 50-pound sack of black oil sunflower. It'll be GMO if it's from tractor supply. No, it won't. There's no GMO black oil sunflower, at least not yet. So while it's not there, let's not worry about it. And that, that bag will grow tons and tons of cycles of those greens, and you don't need lights and all that stuff if you're doing this for quail with just sunflower. Find filtered shade, and for most of the year, when it's not too cold, you can just grow grow this out about once a week, you're turning a tray over. So if you had seven trays and a soaking bin, you could be giving your quail a tray a day. And, and that's a great supplement, and that's kind of what we're going to do on a larger scale with ours. Um, there's a lot of stuff you can grow that they like millet. You know, they, they really do like millet. and Japanese, millet grows really fast, but your birds can't healthily live on that. Millet is 11 grams of protein to 100 grams. Since that's the metric system, the math easy. It's 11%. You need birds getting 26% protein. So we can grow some millet, and they'll eat it, and they'll like it, but every time we feed it to them, we're dragging down their total protein intake. So... And if we did grow millet, or you think you're gonna harvest millet and you're going to harvest your seed every year and replant? See, so I, I just think that we're, sometimes, sometimes I think in the world of like regenerative agriculture, we're looking for problems that aren't there. Um, a person wants to provide, and I understand it's a noble goal. And if you can do it, great. This is probably not the animal to try to do it with. And again, it doesn't make any sense unless you never go to the store and you never buy anything and you have no inputs into your life. I mean, in the end, you have to think about the fact that we all we all exist as part of this larger ecosystem that human beings are part of, and commerce is a natural thing between human beings. If it wasn't, nobody you, you wouldn't have a job, right? And I, I know some people think we're going to live in some kind of utopia with no money and all the food's going to be produced in backyards. And, you know, God love it. If it could happen, I'd be the first person banging a drum for it. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. And it's these steps that are going to get us closer to that. So I I don't think you're going to be able to grow 100% of what your quail need. In fact, I'm going to tell you that it's all but impossible. And until you show me somebody that's done it, I don't think it's possible. And especially if you're a small producer on a small piece of land I mean, to, to do it for a dozen quail, you're going to have to dedicate the whole 100% of your land's effort to feeding quail. Um, it, it just, there's certain things that people should specialize in to a degree. So I grow quail, but I don't grow chickens. That doesn't mean I don't think chickens should be grown. I've just chosen quail, so I'm going to be better at quail than somebody that just does chickens. So they're going to be better at chickens than I am and there's room for so many people in this space why can't there be room for people who are producing high quality feed that are specialized in that cuz it's a specialized business and not every place is good for growing feed for quail or birds and some places where it's really a great place to keep animals it's not really the best place to grow their feed and sometimes it's not even that far away that it is a much better place to grow their feed so that, that's my my thought on that. Um, lots of people. But my climate's really hot. They're tropical birds from Japan. They can handle heat. What they can't handle is direct sun that they can't get out of and not having water when it's hot out. Um, we had one time this year with my tractored quail that I got kind of busy and I didn't give them water in the middle of the day for about an hour longer than I should have. And the tarp that I had on there for shade, just I mean, it just sucks, right? One thing goes wrong, multiple things go wrong. Wind blew the tarp off. They were getting too much sun. They were out of water. They looked miserable. They were panting like chickens pant. They looked like they were moving a little bit. I was afraid I was going to lose some. I filled up all their water. I got shade back on them, and in 15 minutes, everybody was happy. So I mean, but as quick as they were better, was as quick as they they started to head downhill. So with hot climates, shade. Airflow, water, you're going to be fine. I mean, if you're doing this in Death Valley or something, that's different, but most of the United States is no hotter than the hottest parts of Japan. So what's the other one? But I live in zone 17,000 below 0B or whatever. I'm in, Okay, cold weather. Block the wind, keep them dry, and possibly in the coldest times provide them supplemental heat, And certainly, if they're going to be in an outdoor environment, supply them some sort of a a secondary housing, like I said, Tupperware bins with a hole cut in them, something like that, they'll be fine. If you're in a really cold situation, or it's just easy to do, like, I don't think it's so cold here ever that I really need to do this, but I can throw a heat lamp array into my aviary, and the heat lamps just clamp on, they can clamp onto the shelving. So when they move, I can just move, I can have two or three heat lamps and just have an area that's kind of additional warmth. But if you keep them from being exposed to the wind, and unless you're like in, in in I don't know, Barrow, Alaska or something, they do fine. Brad Davies lives in Detroit, Michigan. He has them in a garage that's unheated. Never lost a bird to cold. John Dowie lives in Derry, New Hampshire. I think he's in like zone four. He has them outdoors, but they're protected from wind. He's not lost any from cold. So... It's, it's, it's just think about them like a chicken, a smaller chicken. And if you give them the same types of protections you would give a chicken and a little bit more physical protection because they can't just be allowed to, to free range like a chicken or what have you, they're, they're probably going to do okay. Chickens are also tropical birds, by the way. Um, next one. What do they taste like? What do they taste like? Uh, Also, in that, is the meat dark? Is it light? Are Texas A&M's dark meats and browns are light meats and and vice versa? Okay, here's the thing. I don't see any difference in the color of the meat on a quail between its breast and its thigh and its leg. It all looks the same to me. Maybe I'm a little bit colorblind, but not that much. They're pretty much mostly light-colored meat, is the way I would put it. They're not the white of a chicken's breast. They're darker than that. They are not the dark of a chicken's thigh. They're lighter than that. They're somewhere in between. I kind of liken this to if you've never eaten a quail, but you have eaten chicken, they taste sort of like chicken, but not exactly the same. The way that if you had never eaten turkey, I would say, well, turkey, and it, it's it's not the same difference, right? But it's a difference. The turkey sort of tastes like chicken, but it doesn't. And if so, if you've had tur- chicken and turkey, that's why I use those. You know what I'm saying there? Like chicken and turkey are similar, but they're not the same. But if if somebody had one and not the other, it would be a good animal. like If you like this, you'll probably like that. If you've had dove, this is where I actually see quail meat. It's somewhere on the spectrum between the white snow white of a chicken and the ridiculously like dark, almost purple color of a dove. If you ever see a dove rest, they're almost purple. They're that dark. And they're more toward the chicken end of the spectrum, but let's say like 30% of the way from chicken to dove. And that's where I think the flavor is. I was eating some last night, and I was thinking, there is a dove-like quality here. It's not as much of that, but it's 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 got it's, it's like... If you made sausage out of quail, and you made sausage by grinding 30% dove and 70% chicken, and you made two sausages and you tasted them both, I think you would almost not be able to tell them apart. So that's kind of where they are taste-wise. As far as the dark and light, I think you just need to just let it go. Just let it go. Let it. I'm, I'm, I don't want. To, I, I don't want to sound mean, or not, but I'm tired of hearing. Well, I want a white quill. I want. It, it, they are what they are. You know, you, you can want night to have an orange sky, but it's black. It's just the way that it is. They are what they are. And here's what they really are. They are a light meat. They are about the same light color everywhere that a chicken's breast is supposed to be, and no longer is. If you go and cull an old heritage breed chicken, and you look at the meat on that chicken, it looks almost exactly like that quail, and that moving toward the dove taste, that's flavor. That's, the, that's what that is. It's not. It, it actually tastes probably closer to chicken than it doesn't, but it has flavor because, the, because it hasn't been bred to be snow white and have no flavor. You ask any chef how they feel about cooking chicken breast. Just, you know, boneless, skinless chicken breast. You know what they'll tell you? Oh, it's great. I can make it taste like anything I want to because it doesn't taste like anything. I can season it, flavor it, sauce it, whatever. I can, I can infuse any flavor I want into it because there's nothing to compete with because it's tasteless. So when, when people say quail have this gamey taste or something, again, gamey's not a taste. Gamey's not a flavor. Gamey is made up shit by people that don't understand what food's supposed to taste like or by people that don't know how to cook it and ruin it and then blame it being gamey. All right? So... It is, it is what it is. It's a light-colored meat, but it's not as light as a chicken. And, again, the A&Ms and the Browns, to me, are the same. Okay, next one. Ugh. Why do I personally, me, Jack, skin versus pluck my birds? Why don't you pluck your birds? The, the skin's so good and yummy, yummy. And Okay, when I slaughter a bird, and I'll explain how I do it in a bit, Uh, Because it's another question, I can do the bird if I want to hurry in 45 seconds flat. We timed a couple different ways that I I, I tried it at the workshop, and the fastest one I did was about 45 seconds. Without like, if I really, really wanted to break my own record, I could push it down in 30 seconds. Um, Mainly because I'm taking the, the the leg and the thigh and the breast. It takes a little bit of extra time. If I just want the breast out, I can do it the way I do a dove, and I can do 30 seconds flat. Plucking is going to take five minutes at least a bird. Okay, how much do I value that skin? Not that much. Because I want you to think about, like, five minutes doesn't sound long, but it's one little bird. So let's say I have to do 20. Let's say I have to do 20. So if I have to do 20 birds... And I'm going to take five minutes of bird. It's probably going to be longer. I'm being kind to that. So I'm going to end up with 100 minutes. One hour and 40 minutes is what it's going to take me to do that. Well, let's call it, let's be honest and call it two hours because that's what it's going to end up in. So noon, I start doing it. I'm not done until two. At two, I still have to package my birds, put them away, do whatever, etc. If I skin them and do my the method I learned from Brad Davies, which is not far off the method I've always done doves with, and I don't do it as fast as I can, I take a minute a piece. I'm done in 20 minutes. That's why. I think skin is fantastic on just about everything. And if I had one of like you know the chicken plucker machines, the whiz bangers, you throw them in there and it tumbles them around and boom 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 boom, boom and does all that stuff. If I had a little mini one and they make them. And someday, if I'm doing a lot of this, I might go to it. I, I would consider doing that. But what else do I not have to do when I skin them? I don't have to scald. I don't have to get out a pot. I don't have to have a, a heater, a burner, something like that. Hot water, it's another step. Everything's wet. It makes a bigger mess. This is my setup for, well, I'm going to hold off on that until I, I get to it. But I skin versus pluck my birds because it's faster and because they taste fantastic even without the skin. It'd be great if it was there and if you were selling the restaurants or something like that. It's it's a different issue and they probably want the skin on, but there's so many wonderful ways to make quail skin off, you know. If you want skin on it, give it a skin, a bacon skin. You know, wrap it in bacon and and you won't miss the skin. Um next question, how do I personally slaughter and process quail? Um, we do have videos somewhere. I'll try to find one. If, if not, the next time I, I call, I'll, I'll shoot a video. Um, but it's hard to explain, but yet it's pretty simple. There's a lot of people on YouTube already that have done videos. So you can go to YouTube and search for, for processing a quail, and you'll see how to do it. But basically, I grab a little quail, and I hung him upside down. I hold him by his, I hold his wings in. A lot of people hold them by the feet and let them flap around. I don't do that. This just works much better So because they're small enough you can just get your hand over them. So you get your hand over the wings. You turn them upside down and face him away from you. So he's looking the other direction, never sees it coming. And I take a pair of scissors. Well, let me stop there a second. Oh, here's how I set up my processing station. I take a table, like either a picnic table we have outside or like a folding table. I set that up. On top of that table, I put a pot of ice water. And on the ground, right in front of that table, I take a five-gallon bucket and fill it three-quarters of the way with clean water. I take another five-gallon bucket, I put a garbage bag in there like a little garbage can. Now, I'm ready to go. And the only other tool I need, and this is why I like this method, the only other tool I need is a pair of scissors. And I'll tell you the truth, I can do it with my bare hands. A little bit different than I'm going to describe, but I can do it. So, a pair of shears. So now I've got them upside down, held by the wings, and I've got him over the bucket with the garbage bag in it. Boom, off goes the head. When you do that, the fluttering starts. This is why I don't hold them by the feet. If you hold them by the feet, they're fluttering, blood spurting all over the place like that. The heart's beating, the body's quivering. Well, if you just hold the wings, the body quivers and it pumps all the, the, the residual heartbeat, pumps all the blood into the bucket. And it doesn't go all over. You hold them there for 20 seconds, and this is actually why it takes a minute. If you, if you just keep going at this point, you can, you can do this in 45 seconds, but then you've got this kind of moving around bird. So you wait, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and most of the movement is gone by then. And most of the the blood is spurted out, and it doesn't. It's not like a chicken where it's a lot. It's like a little dribble, and it's a little fast dribble, and it's a slow dribble, and it's a drop. Okay. Then I take the bird, and I turn them around, and I pull the wings out, and I just cut the wings off with the shears. If you want to get the little bit of meat that's in the first part of the wing, you can cut the wing at what you'd call the elbow. So you know, on a chicken chicken wing, you've got the tip they throw away, or you make stock out of it. You got that, then you got the forearm piece that's got the two bones in it. And you got the little piece you call a drumette. You have the quail, the little forearm piece is nothing. But there is a little bit of meat on that kind of, you know, drumette piece. So you can cut it at what would be your elbow if you want to. And it's not really any harder, but it's not really much there. And it cooks faster, so I don't know what you'd really do. I guess you could make little tiny hors d'oeuvres out of them or something. But I just cut the whole wing off. Then I turn it sideways, I cut the two feet off, right? Where the bare part hits the feathers, right where that joint is. I cut right through that joint, snap, snap. Okay? Then I turn them around. So you're looking at the butt, and I cut the butt off. All right? Just, just like, again, I'll do a video on this. You cut the butt off, and once I've done that, I just start peeling from there. I just peel the skin off and I peel all the skin all the way off the bird, and you just keep pulling to get most of the skin off. You might get a little bit kind of sticking on the backbone. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you why in a second. But you peel it, and then you flip it over so you've you got the belly laying in your left hand, the back sticking up. I take my shears, and I cut down one side of the backbone, cut down the other side of the backbone. Pull the backbone out. If you're going to use the backbone for anything, you kind of do it slowly and pull the stuff off of it, and you get a clean backbone. You can make, if you're doing a lot of birds, you can make a big pot of quail stock just from those backbones. If you're going to not use the backbone and you pull it a little bit quicker, it'll pull most of the guts with it. It'll take the kid, the kidneys will stay on it. Like the intestines and all will come with it. And you kind of grab them, pull them with it. It all comes out at once. What I did last time, I pulled the backbone out, pulled the guts off and gave the backbones to the cats. And the cats devoured them, bones and all. Ate every bit of it. I think Fox had four and Dana had five. Even though know, she's a smaller cat before they, they wore out on it. Um, and then you throw all that stuff, including the backbone, if you're not going to save it, into the, the waste can. And that'll leave the gizzard, the heart, and the liver and the lungs. You reach down and pull the gizzard out slowly. It kind of starts to pull the liver with it. And it'll come free. And then the liver's kind of sitting there. So you pull the liver out. Set it aside if you want to keep the liver. And the livers are wonderful. Don't cook them too long. Hot and fast. Fried. Just sprinkled with a little bit of flour, salt, and pepper. Wonderful that way. Fry until they start to get a little crisp on the outside and get them out of there. If it's mushy, you've cooked it too long. So liver out. If you're going to throw it away, throw it away. Give it to the dog. Make sausage, whatever. But I save it to cook. And then the heart's there. You pull the heart out. You set the heart down. And then you take your knuckle, your, the, the thumbnails and scrape the lungs. Take the whole chicken, or the whole tur- uh, turkey, the whole quail, and that bucket of water, tr- dip it in there and swirl it around to clean it off. Pull it out, check it, see if there's any other spots you got to get of the lungs or whatever. Go back in there, move it around. Any kind of feathers that are sticking to it will come off in the water. This is the important part. When you pull it out of the water, pull it quickly so you have it all the way under the water, just kind of jerk it out of the water, and all the feathers that are sitting on the top of the water won't stick back to you have a clean quail into the thing of ice water. It takes less time to do than it took me to explain it. And I also just throw my hearts and livers in the ice water. A lot of people don't like to throw the livers in the ice water because if you put livers in water, they go from this beautiful red kind of to this washed look. Well, guess what? Guess what happens when you do that? It's pulling a lot of that minerally stuff out of it, and you have a nice, clean-tasting liver. Now... Whenever you're dealing with livers, there's a place where there's a little green thing kind of attached to the liver. That's the gallbladder. Sometimes it's a little tricky. With, with small birds like this, it's not that hard to just kind, of, just kind of keep an eye out for it and make sure that you kind of separate it. If one opens up and it gets on the liver, throw that liver away. The, the gallbladders are nasty. Next question. I've heard a lot of you know people say, I've heard all this stuff about uber productivity. How many legs eggs do these things really lay? From eight weeks forward, If you give them everything that they need, they'll lay on average one egg a day. And they'll do that for a year. Most people that do them regularly never let them get that old. The older they get, the tougher they get, less of a quality of a meat product they are. And their uber productivity is from day one of laying an egg for six months. So over a six-month period, that bird will average 170 to 180 eggs. And that's why most people, at that point, that bird's going to be eight weeks old. I'm sorry, eight months old. So two months to get there and then six months of laying. At that point, they're probably bringing new birds in to replace them. You can go take them to 9, 10, 11, 12 months. Usually at that point, it really makes sense. If you want to keep that frequency up, go ahead and call them. It's a meat product. And Do what I just said. And You got meat and you got another group. So you only, and this is what the big advantage over chickens is. My delta is only two months. So I only have to be double rearing for for eight weeks. And as soon as my next group starts laying, these guys are gone. And then there's a feed debt issue too that, that we should talk about here. And this is why they're so much more productive than a chicken. If I have a baby chicken, that chicken produces zero eggs for 22 to 26 weeks. But a baby quail, it produces zero eggs for eight weeks. By the time a chicken lays an egg, a quail has laid 80. And if I'm going to be bringing in a new group of laying chickens, I have to take care of them for that long before they become productive. And I have to wait that long to cull. And if I lose, this is another big thing. Let's say some kind of disaster happens with your brooder, and, and you have three or four weeks in, or not even your brooder, like once you get your young birds or something, something happens and you lose half your young birds. You've lost three or four weeks. But if you fix fixed that, you're still only eight weeks away from having replacements. What if you lose young chickens when they're two months, three months into it? You're set back six months again. There's a lot of resiliency in that. That's something we should look at when we think about this. So um, about an egg a day is how many eggs they really lay. And we just had somebody, the, the numbers played out exactly in a comment on the blog. Exactly the way I said. It. They said they've got like a thousand something eggs over a certain period of time. And when you did the math, it came out exactly the way that I've said it does. Um, next question. Uh, how would you, oh, my, my birds are old enough, but they're not laying yet. Why? They should be laying and they're just not doing it. Um, well, there's the most likely reason is daylight the so most, first place to check, 14 hours of light. So I know Nick Ferguson got some quail before I did, this group anyway, this group of quail. And I I said to him one day a couple weeks ago, I said, are your birds laying yet? And he said, no. I said, do you have lighting on them? Nope. He's got them outside, you know, by, like by his rabbits or whatever. And it kind of probably set up a lot like I talked about, doing them similar to rabbits, but didn't have any artificial lighting out there. That day, my birds started laying, and his were like four or five weeks older than mine. I mean that that it was like I talked to him on the phone, I went in to feed them for the evening and there were eggs in the cage. So lighting is number 1, two water. Clean fresh water. So if you're using some kind of water system where they can soil their water until you can until you can do better, change it daily at least. Three feed. If you don't have at least 24 to 26% protein, you're going to have poor egg yields. You probably still have some, but it'll be poor. So you fix those three things and make sure they're not stressed. Obviously, if they're, they're, they're ready to die of heat, if they're freezing cold or they're about to fall over and die, getting too much wind on them, all those things can hurt egg productivity. But it's, it's usually just food, uh, water, and daylight. And the daylight is, you know, that's what's nice about doing them in a garage or something. All I do right now is when I feed them for the last time in the evening, so I go out there and I pick up their eggs about 5 o'clock, uh, and it's funny, if I go out there at 4.30, it'll be like three eggs. And I'll pull those three eggs out and I start filling their feeders. And as I, I'll turn around and there's two eggs there that weren't there five seconds ago. And they're warm, you know. And so all I do for right now until they're out in the, the aviary is when I leave the garage at that point, I just turn the lights on. And I, t- I pick my phone up and I go, Siri, set an alarm for 9 o'clock p.m. And if I forget about it, all of a sudden the phone goes off and I go outside and shut the lights off. If they were going to be in there permanently, I'd put them on a timer. But since this is temporary, that's my temporary solution. So that's, that, that's worked out really, really well. And I started doing the alarm because one day I forgot and the poor guys were out there with the light on all night and it kind of screwed them up. So that's the other thing. If you, if you keep them on, like, you leave the light on for like 24 hour period, it, it can really throw them out of whack. Next question is really a subjective one, but I'll give you my opinion of it. You know, and it's why are quail eggs better than chicken eggs? You know, why are quail eggs better than chicken eggs? So there's numerous angles to answer that from. From one standpoint, I would say the reason quail eggs are better than chicken eggs, if you're in this for a business, is because they're more profitable. I mean, bluntly, if you want to make a profit, then it's better to be in business doing something that's more profitable than less profitable. Let's say you're lucky and you can get $6 a dozen for chicken eggs, which is hard because so many people, even in urban you know, urban edges now, are doing chickens. And chicken eggs are available everywhere. You go to the supermarket, there's chicken eggs. You go to the supermarket, there's there's chicken eggs, there's cage-free, there's free-range, there's organic, there's browns, there's there's chicken eggs everywhere. So it's, it's much more commoditized. So when somebody's looking for quail eggs, their options are somewhat limited. So you can generally make more money in total with quail eggs than chicken eggs. So that's one reason. Nutritionally, I won't get deep into it because I'm not a nutritionist, but quail eggs have more iron, they have more B12, um, they have more omega-3s. And this is not a quail egg versus a chicken egg, but the equivalent amount, let's say 100 grams of each. Uh, So they they are more dense nutrition-wise. Next, and and I I have yet to really dig deep into this, so I'm just going to mention it sort of as an aside. Quail eggs are considered medicinal by many indigenous peoples. Specifically, uh, traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, which is the, 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 the traditional philosophy uh, of medicine out of like the Indian subcontinent. And there seems to be, based on my initial research, something to it with some medical conditions where people start eating quail eggs and they have success in self-treatment of things like irritable bowel syndrome and some other things. And I'm going to leave it at that because I'm not going to make health claims about this, especially since I sell these things. But I'm just going to say if you go down that road, you'll find a lot of information. on, And you'll find a lot of historical use in traditional Chinese medicine, which I believe has a lot of validity as a a, a practice with quail eggs. Mitigating that somewhat because I'm not one of these people that says, well, since the Internet says it cures cancer, it does. Um, It's not lost on me. That at the time that traditional Chinese medicine was just medicine, okay, it was just the only choice you had, that a, a person might go with some sort of uh, physical impediment, some sort of uh, lack of health to a, a doctor, and that person's diet had probably rarely been rice, you know, and they're not getting enough vitamins and minerals and things like that, and any egg might have made them better. But I I, I do think there's something to that as well. Taste-wise. So people say, well, there's no real reason to pay more for Twill eggs because they taste just like chicken eggs. My response to that is, chicken eggs don't taste just like chicken eggs. What? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it, it makes sense if you keep your own chickens. If you keep backyard chickens, a, a really great diet that are happy birds... Uh, that are eating good quality feed, that are getting greens, that are getting exercise, that are treated well. And you take that egg and you compare it to an egg that you get from a grocery store or a restaurant that sells off-the-shelf stuff from Cisco. Um, They don't taste the same. The egg in the store is watery. The yolk is bland. When When you cook it over easy or over medium and you break the yolk, it runs like crayon water instead of this golden color. So chicken eggs don't taste like chicken eggs. So I think a lot of times when people say that, if you're buying quail eggs from a mass production facility of quail that treats quail the same way people treat chickens, they probably do taste quite similar because both of them probably have very little flavor. The quail eggs I'm producing already, without even getting them into the aviary, on this Texas Natural's peanut meal-based feed, they have that quality of flavor that I'm looking for in an egg. They, They really do. I also think so... One of the things about human beings is taste is subjective to things beyond just flavor. There's also size, there's texture, there's um, mouthfeel. There's a lot of things that affect taste. So if I have a beautiful steak, cooked medium, gorgeous, pink, juicy, caramelized on the outside, and I slice a piece of it, I set that aside, I slice another piece aside, and I take that piece that I, that I slice second, And I put in a blender and I pulse it to like, it's like baby food consistency and I set them on a plate next to each other. They taste just the same, don't they? They don't? Well, they're the same thing. What do you mean they don't taste the same? Come on, it's the same. I just cut it off the same piece of meat. They were an inch apart. Why don't they taste the same? Texture, mouthfeel, a lot of things are subjective there. So I want you to consider this. I cook you a beautiful, over easy chicken egg, and I cook you a beautiful over easy tiny quail egg, all by itself. I use one of those little uh, like little pans with a little dip holes in them that they use to do them as street food in, in like Korea and Thailand and stuff like that. And now we take a little piece of like toast, and we put that pretty little quail egg on that little piece of toast. And we take a big old hunk of toast, and we put that big old giant chicken egg on the center of it. And you cut into the chicken egg with your fork and you get a piece of bread and you get all white. And you cut again, you get another piece of all white with the the toast and you cut into it again, you get a little bit of yolk with it, and then you break the yolk and it starts running, it started cause it's good. But what if we take that whole little quail egg on that little piece of toast and we pick that up and we put it in our mouth and we experience the entire thing as a single taste? Do you not think it's different? Because it is. Now, if I scramble quail eggs and scramble chicken eggs and they're both qual- of the same equal quality, they taste very, very similar. But I'd say that about duck eggs. If I scramble duck eggs and scramble chicken eggs, don't taste much different if they're both good quality. Over easy, over medium. The, 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 the viscosity of the yolks different. The flavor, the texture, that's what makes a duck egg superior. So I think a thing with a, with a quail's egg is the fact that I have this single bite size thing that I get the totality of it. So here's another example. Pickled quail egg versus pickled chicken egg. I bite into the, the pickled uh, chicken egg. Unless I'm a pig and shove it in my beak, right? I get mostly white, a little bit of yolk. Then I get this different... But a quail egg's a little pop, and I get the whole experience in a single package. So I think from, like, does this change your life? No. But when you're talking about food presentation and you, you, you kind of want to take something to a new level... That Quail allow a gourmet approach to that. That's a lot of what they're used for. Or another way to look at it, I take a couple dozen quail eggs and I boil them. I peel them, and I cut them just long ways in half. I put them in a salad. When I eat that in my salad, I get that whole half a quail egg mixed with the the crouton and the, and the greens and, and the dressing and things. And so when you start looking at it that way, from an eating experience, I, I'm enjoying these small eggs. It, it's it's really kind of cool. So I don't know that they're better, but they have different qualities that are beyond just the individual flavor. Um, next, what is the brooding process? The brooding process for quail is they need to stay warm, they need to stay dry, and the official n- number is three weeks. Not two. Not four. Three shall be the number, and only the number shall be three, right? Okay, Um, my brooding process. I went and picked up my quails. I brought them home. I put them in my big Rubbermaid brooder that everybody would think would be wonderful. I put a little water thing in there, put some food in there, put a heat light in there. And the first day, two quail got crushed up against the side of the brooder and ended up dead. I had all these little quails, over 100 of them. I had that chicken tractor sitting outside. They're only three days old. Can't do this. It's evil. Yeah, I'm doing it. Go outside, run an extension cord, put it closer to the barn where it's easier to get the extension cord to it. Clip two uh, heat lights up underneath it. Put a tarp around it. Now, this was spring. Actually, this was fall. This was fall. It was cool, but not cold. But the overnights, without the heat, they would have died. Absolutely. Put the tarp over it. Put them in there. Lost Zero. Lost zero, lost zero. Take that as you will. The way most people do it in a rack system, though, do it, they usually have a rack of like three cages a foot tall, and that leaves enough space on the bottom to put in a a typical brooder box, which you can do with a Rubbermaid tub, a stock tank, whatever, and you need a heat lamp, you need a a watering solution where they stay dry, and you just put them in there and you feed them the same feed that they're going to eat for the rest of their life. And this is the one thing. That coffee grinder I destroyed, I need to get a new one, because we have baby quails, you run the feed through there and you grind it to about the half grain consistency for them. And they need that till about, they don't need it, but it's very helpful to them for about two weeks. And about three, two and two and a half, three weeks, they can eat anything. And by three weeks, if they die, it's because any quail would have died, or they're sick. It's not because they're too fragile to, to adapt to an environment that an adult quail could. So that's that's pretty much the brooding process. What's the incubation process like, and what type of incubator works best? So incubation process and what type of incubator works best? Um, any incubator will work. Brad uses one of the like hoverbater incubators, like the just styrofoam cheap ones uh, with an automatic egg turner. You want an automatic egg turner because otherwise. You have to open it constantly and screw up the environment and hand-turn the eggs. So you need an egg-turner that works for quail eggs and any incubator. Here's the caveat. So I've recommended the and But I've said every time I've done it, and people, it's really important you listen when I recommend something, and I say, and this is what I've done with it. My Incubview incubator... Um, I've done ducks and chickens with. It's worked outstanding. I've loaned it to Nick, who's done ducks with it and chickens with it. It's worked outstanding. I've heard from many of you who have done ducks and chickens with it. It's worked outstanding. One person bought it, tried to do quail, and they failed. And they said, why did it fail? Okay, I haven't done quail with it. But, Jack, you just said you can use any incubator. I did, and I'm getting there. But, I mean, the first thing is, it's not the incubator's fault that you used it wrong. Okay? Here's why that happens, though. When I did chicken eggs in my inky view, I took the chicken eggs, I threw them in the inky view, I added some water to the bottom of the inky view, I put the lid on it, I looked at it, hydrometer didn't say it was too dry or too wet, I plugged it in, I set the timer for, for, for chicken duration, and I set it so it would turn the eggs six times a day, and I left it sit on a table. There were times I kind of brain farted it got too dry, and I had to add some water, and there were times I had a little too much water a little too wet. And then when the chickens started hatching, I would open it up and pull the little puff ball out and stick them in the brooder and then stick another one in the brooder. And the next one came out and I would constantly... And everything worked. I put 32 eggs in, got 31 chickens. Couldn't count my eggs, uh, my chickens before they were hatched, but I damn sure got close to it. That was the most I ever did. There were times I put 24 eggs in there and got 24 chickens. 100%. And not being really particular with doing it right quail do have a procedure and you got to get it right it's not that the incubator can't do it it's that you have to pay attention to it so here, here's the basic formula um the temperature of your incubator should be 99.5 degrees uh, if you're using a forced air incubator humidity needs to be between 25 and 50 percent for the first 14 to 15 days the last three days you call that lockdown The humidity has to be raised to 60 to 75%. The eggs must be turned at least three times a day, and a turner's recommended cease turning during the lockdown period. The birds are orienting to to hatch. If you turn once the the birds are ready to hatch and you've jacked up that humidity, they, they can't do that. It keeps jacking them up. Do not open the incubator at all during the lockdown period. And the chicks can live about 24 hours in the incubator. They, the birds just like little chickens, they ship in the mail, they can go two day, a a day with no food or water. So, you leave them in there pretty much till everybody's hatched and take them all out at once. And, uh, that's, that's the basics of it. The big key is the humidity. My understanding is if you get it too humid, too dry obviously is bad too, but if you get it too humid, let's say you got 70% humidity in, in the first couple days, the shells are permeable. They'll take in that moisture, and the little air pocket that the, the quail needs uh, right before it hatches will fill up with fluid, and the quail will develop just fine right up until that last couple that last couple three four days, and it actually breathes that air in that little pocket. That's why it's there. So you know when you candle an egg and you see that little space up there, that's what that's for. The bird breathe like when the bird is ready to come out but hadn't got out yet, it, it's breathing the air in that space until it pips a hole in the eggshell and can breathe outside air. So your, your quail will be developing perfectly, and then just a few days before it's going to hatch, it'll drown in its own egg. So that's why the humidity control is so important, where if you go too light on your humidity, you end up with a dried-out egg and it doesn't develop. So that incubation period is, is the most important. Now Brad, Brad Davies has his whole PowerPoint deck on a site called Prezi, like for presentations, P-R-E-Z-I, And I will put a link to that presentation. It has that information, a lot more stuff, in the resources for today's show notes. All right, this is an interesting question, and it kind of goes to the inputs-output question. It's coming later to a degree. But if I answer it for this person, you should be able to figure out whatever you're going to need using a similar formula. So the question is, how many birds do I need to eat quail once a week and eggs three times a week? And this was from a family And I don't remember the number. Let's just say we have a family of four. So I want to eat, um, eggs three times a week. And I want to eat quail once a week. It's a, actually, believe it or not, you need less quail to produce the new quails to eat than you do to probably produce the eggs. But let's work this out and say fourteen. And see if that would work for us. And let's say that we're going to average 12 eggs, and this is 14 girls, so we're also going to have to have some boys in there. Uh, But let's say then we're going to do our our cages, and we're going to do 4 to 1, male to female with that. And just to make the math round up, let's say we're going to do 4 to 1, and we're going to do 16 girls for a little bit of extra, right? Right. So that means we're going to have 16 and groups of four. We're going to have four groups, and we need four males. So have 20 birds. So that's four cages. That's a pretty small setup. Now, even though we pretty much get an egg a day, we're going to say um, out of the 16 birds, we're going to get a dozen quail eggs a day, which is really not a big deal at all. Well, that's going to give me 84 quail eggs a week. And if I take 84 and I divide that by five, I'm going to come out to about 16.8. Uh, assuming that we're going to do better than a dozen with that many, maybe not quite 16 a day, but it would be reasonable to say that I could probably push that up to about the equivalent of 20 chicken eggs. So I'm going to get 20 chicken eggs a week. I'm going to eat eggs three times a week. Um, 20 divided by three is what, like six, right? So that gives me about six eggs per meal. So that you'd have to answer for yourself, does that work? If I had 16 quail, I would be producing enough to eat the equivalent of six chicken eggs three times a week. And then at some point, you're going to have to not eat eggs to be able to to hatch out quail. Well, how many quail do we need for a family of four to eat quail once a week? Assuming everybody eats two birds, we need 400. And a little bit more, but we'll just call it 400 because you're probably not going to eat them every single week. You take two weeks off for vacations and holidays and stuff like that. So 400 quail. When we get this at that frequency, we're producing 4,368 eggs a year. So we need to take 400 of those to produce 400 quail for for new hatched out quail for meat if we're going to incubate our own eggs. That leaves us 3,968 quail eggs. Uh, that means that it leaves us the equivalent of 793 chicken eggs, with, with considering five quail eggs to a chicken egg, but 66 dozen eggs. So if you eat less than 66 dozen eggs a year, and most people probably do, um, and you take 400 out for making new quails, then 16 hens and four, uh, four roosters to do that for you. No problem. No problem. But I would say, why not Why not do a little better? Why not kind of scale that? And, and, and then again, you got to also say, well, are you going to, is your family going to eat every time four people sit down to dinner? Are you going to eat eight quail? Is everybody going to eat two or does everybody want three? Or does dad want three, mom wants two, and the kids want one apiece? You know, are you going to eat them as part of a meal or are you going to be very paleo? Or are they going to you know, be mixed in with rice or however you, you have to work out the math for yourself? But let's say that those numbers worked out to be pretty much perfect for you. So what if we added two more cages to that equation? And that was all surplus. And it also gave us the ability to accumulate eggs for hatching without having these lags where we don't have eggs for us to eat. So we put two more of those eggs the two more of those systems in. And this is the plan. Those guys are going to produce our full hundred eggs for hatching. These other guys they're, they're just there for eggs, for us. And everything beyond those 400 eggs a year for hatching, we're going to sell. How does that work out? They're going to give us 56 extra eggs a week. So we're going to have to give up, um, let's just take the six for granted and say it's 50 eggs a week. We're going to have to give up four weeks of their production just to produce our meat. And our other girls and other girls are just producing eggs. But what does that mean? That means those other males go away. We only need two males now. Maybe we keep one floater male up there as our spare male. So we bring him into service if something happens to one of our other two breeders. They're going to give us an additional 2,912 eggs a year on average. That's going to give us 242 dozen quail eggs. If we sell them cheap at $3 a dozen to friends and neighbors, they're going to put, produce $726 in revenue. A quail, and this this is kind of jumping ahead, but a quail eats about two pounds of food a day. Let's say you're feeding them a free or two pounds of food a month. Let's say you're feeding them a premium feed like I am and paying twenty five hours a bag. You've got twenty seven quail now. Twenty seven quail need fifty four bags of or fifty four pounds of food a month, just a little over a bag. Six hundred and forty eight bags of feed or forty eight pounds of feed a year. Let's round it up to six fifty. Thirteen bags of feed a year, to feed that many quail. It cost $325. Your two extra cages just produced all your meat quail and paid for everybody's feed. So, you have to adjust that based on your own desires, needs, how much work you want to do, do you really want to sell eggs, etc. But that would be one way to do that, and basically have birds that provide for their own needs. Oh, the, the inputs are from off-site, but the the 100 percent of the cost of production is covered on site. You see how that works? So that's how that would work out, and you could do that. And again, what you end up with there is the total. If we do it that way, is 27 quail because we have we have three cages with just four girls a piece in them, and we can go denser than this. But we're just we're giving them a, a you know kind of a, a really nice existence here. So we have three cages with four girls in it. We have one more cage with four girls and our spare male in it, and then we have two cages where we're breeding, but we're only doing egg production with them other than when we're breeding for meat production, and each one of those cages has a, a, a male and four girls, and that way we have that spare male if we lose either male. Now, the other thing we can do is we can even reduce costs and, and, and what have you. Once, once we've gotten our meat yield for the year, you know we can, we can start culling off some of those other birds if we don't really need that many eggs. And all we need to do is keep a couple breeding pairs through our winter if we don't want to work hard in the winter. And we talked about you know doing it seasonally, and we can ramp back up anytime we want to. This assumes you become good at hatching and incubating and breeding. That's what that assumes. If you want to buy your chicks, and you're just willing to pay a dollar apiece for your chicks, then what you do is you do all your animals in your laying pit cages 100% female. You have no useless eaters. And you have no stress over breeding. And you just buy your meat birds and you sell your surplus eggs. And you use the sale of your surplus eggs to buy your meat birds from a guy that does the hatching for you. And that's another way to do it. So you kind of think about this and don't lock yourself into this perfect being the enemy of the good. And I don't want to do it all myself. Really? Did you build your own? Like I said earlier, did you build your own car? Did you build your own house? You know? If you if you make your own beer, did you make the bottle to put it in? Did you blow your own glass? If you did, right, great. Did you did you turn the sand into glass in the first place? You see what I'm saying? Like don't don't make this harder than it has to be. And we all have so much time and resources available to us. So when I think about producing meat, you know, I say the heck with it. Go 100 percent into your girls. And what you do is you buy double what you need for your breeding stock. And then you just cull all your males. And then you, whenever you need more meat, you just go back to whoever you have as a local breeder. That's the easiest way to do that. Otherwise, yeah, you can, you can produce 400 meat quail a year from a, you know, a stock of 16 to 24 birds. But there's a, a lot of time where you're doing all this other work, brooding, hatching, incubating, and when you're growing them out, they have to be somewhere. Where would it just be easier just to have grow-out cages or pens or aviaries or whatever, and just source your chicks? And why not why, why not talk to the guy you're, you're getting them from? He's probably set up to do it. How much are they? The going rate's a dollar a bird. Okay, great. If uh, if you raise them to two weeks for me, can I pay you two dollars a bird? Most guys are like, yeah, because because they're already they're already dealing with that anyway. It's no big deal to them. So they just phone you up when they have your birds. You go get them and you grow them out. You grow them out for four weeks, you slaughter them. If you need new females, you just take that out. So here's another way to work that. Think about this, right? So I have my little egg operation, 24 hens, right? Four birds uh, in six cages, two by twos. And that's they're just my layers. And they got plenty of room. they got a square foot of bird. The, the optimum, perfect for confined quail. And they're doing their thing. And they're making poop and I'm feeding them microgreens that are happening. They've got customers. Okay, now i got 24 birds, and uh, l- l- I'm going to go ahead and move on, and we'll come back to this as part of the next answer, because the next question is, what are the input and the output numbers, feed time, production time, et cetera, for a quail? Okay, so I kind of gave you that already, but we'll expand on it with the next thing. So what are the input and output numbers, feed time, time to production, all that stuff? Okay, so again, on average, two pounds of food per quail per month, okay? <laughs> so that's that's it the amount of time you spend depends on how efficient your setup is right now because i have these water trough things inside the cage every day i have to go out there and pull them out and they're kind of i have to pinwheel them and slide them out without spilling them and rinse them out and put them back in and my feeders are on the inside like they're not supposed to be so i have to pull every feeder out fill it up stick it back in there collect my eggs 30 minutes a day for a six six cage rack is about how much time I actually put in there. I, a lot of times I'm putting more time in there because I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and thinking, how can I improve this? Because the caging we have is an evolution toward the caging we want to build for people doing this small scale. So I'm doing a lot of thinking in there too. But call it 30 minutes a day. If I had my system set up to where the water was automated and the feed was on feeders on the outside, all I had to do was just pull it out and dump a scoop of feed in and put it back up and pick up my eggs, it, it would literally be less, less than five minutes a day on time. The day that I pull all the pans out, so one day a week I pull all the pans out, I dump them in the wheelbarrow, I spray them out, uh, I fill them with wood chips and I put them back in, that takes me 20 minutes. So those are the time inputs. It's not much. The the beautiful thing we've figured out now though, because they lay the eggs in the in the cage and the eggs are perfectly clean. It's like the duck eggs that we have to bring in and wash and stuff. We when we go when I go pick the eggs out of the, the cage now, function stack. I just take a carton and I just put the eggs in the carton and I put the carton in the refrigerator in the garage. And then if the carton's not full, I don't close it up. I go back out and I when it's full, I close it and I set it on the stack to be sold, or the stack to be eaten. That's it. So that, that takes, like, like, there's no packaging time, because collection and packaging are one. You know, and if your customers have a concern about it, just say, rinse your eggs off before you, you crack them then. So it's it's very little time. And, and that's it. As far as how much water, I, I don't know. I haven't figured it out. I think at the scale we're talking, somebody doing somewhere between a dozen to, you know, like a couple hundred birds or less. We're not talking about, you know, monumental scales of water. Um... But I have a five-gallon bucket that sits up on the top of the rack with, a, with a, like a, a spigot on it, like for a bottling bucket for beer, and that's exactly what it is, and a little tube, and I fill the water up with that. I fill that twice a week, so 10 gallons a week of water for that stack, and I'm dumping half the water out because it's all felt. So five gallons a week for, what is it, six, six times eight, 48 birds that are in there right now. So five gallons a week for 48 birds. That's about what they're actually using. So it, it's not much. So what's the input on cost of feed? Again, $25 a bag. Um, so you're looking at uh, 25 birds or $25 a dollar a bird. Buying a premium feed. Other things like sunflower sprouts and all, you have to work that out based on how much you're wanting to do. To tell you the truth, right now they get a little bit of sunflower sprouts and that's it. Oyster shell, I don't know, I got a five pound bag of it for eight bucks. It'll probably last them a year. So that's there's not much there. And the time can be adjusted based on what you want to do and, and how you want to go. So that's the basic inputs and outputs. The major output besides eggs and meat is poop. So you gotta figure out a solution for the poop. Because I have a large acreage and I have ducks that root it around through stuff. I just pick a piece of ground that looks like it needs improvement. I take my wheelbarrow out to that spot, I dump the wheelbarrow, and I kind of spread it around with the rake. That takes a couple seconds. Then the ducks come through and do their thing, and it starts to break down and, and what have you. When I get them into the aviary, it won't matter. They'll, they'll literally be growing their own food for me right there. So you got to kind of think about what you're going to be doing and work those numbers out for yourself. Next question, can you legally sell meat in blank? This is different in every state. My initial thought was, well, I can, on process, I can process chickens on farm and sell them in Texas, so why not quail? Because quail are their own thing. And to sell quail as meat in this state, they have to go to a USDA processing facility, and there's exactly one USDA processing facility in the state of Texas that does quail. So if I, if I actually wanted to sell into like major meat production market with quail here, what I would have to do is I would have to go and ship those birds there, and it's not practical. It doesn't make any sense. I can absolutely sell you the birds alive, though, and as long as you pay me where they're still alive, they're your birds, and you can do anything you want to with them, including ask your friend, the farmer, to teach you how to process them. Now, he might teach you by processing every single one of them for you while you watch or don't watch and watch his big screen TV in his garage and watch the football game while I process and my education of you. And then I might give them all to you and you might take them home because they were already yours when I did it. Got it? Or you might come to your farmer who will say, I can't you know, justify the risk, so this is what I'll do. I'll give you two for free. I'll show you how to do it, and whenever you want birds for meat, you tell me, I raise them for you, you come get them, and you process them, because it's easy. Or, I'm just saying, people sell stuff all the time you're not supposed to. You know? How many homebrewers have sold somebody a six-pack of beer, even though it's highly illegal? But you wouldn't build a business that way. It wouldn't be something you did regularly. But, I don't know, I think somebody that has a stack of quail in their garage that produces a few hundred birds beyond what they need, that has a couple friends that they sell you know, four quail in a bag, to 20 bucks, too for cash. I don't know that the government has the time to go looking for that person. Because in the end, with, with, with legal issues, we have things that are illegal, we have things that are immoral, and we have things that are immoral and illegal. And I don't know, I don't think your buddy paying you for your quail, that's between you, him, and the fence post, is immoral, even if it's illegal. But there are creative ways around it. Extremely creative ways around it. What if you produce quail and you mark them not for human consumption? Pet food. Premium quality pet food. 20 bucks. People are free to eat pet food if they want to. But that's a wink, nod, nod. You're opening yourself to the liability there, etc. Obviously insurance isn't going to cover you for that. So you need to find out if it's legal in your area and what it takes to be legal. I think it's preposterous. That it's handled differently. I think it's completely ridiculous that it's handled uh, this way. But I'll tell you who the biggest roadblocks are. You know that one USDA facility in the state of Texas that processes all the quail that get processed in Texas, which is actually a pretty big product that comes out of Texas. Yeah, I bet they're I bet they're opposed to it because that's a nice monopoly, isn't it? So what you're actually when you start looking at all these places, these 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 areas where there's restrictions like. On honey and on, it's always like the Texas Honey Producers Association or someone that's ever, that, that that fought uh, the, the the opening up and making it easier for home honey producers to sell their own honey. I mean, it's it, it's always who you wouldn't think it is. It's not necessarily Tyson and Purdue. It's actually the slaughter facilities that that want to hold back chicken and they use the government to do it. So, this is what I'm going to tell you though. I think if you want to make a profit on quail, the money is in the eggs. The money's in the eggs. Here's why. People do pay $5 a piece for quail. I know people that sell, that aren't supposed to, by the way, that sell quail. I don't, because I'm going to eat all my own quail. Just saying. I don't need to sell meat. But I do know people that sell quail for 5 bucks a quail. But, that's not the market rate for quail. It isn't. Um... I see quail selling in, like, Specs Liquor Store, like, three for 12 bucks, So that's $4 a piece. And that's probably selling higher than you would pay in some other places. So it, it's, it's hard to really grow a market going much above what the market will bear. And yet you can produce a premium product with, you know, all organic and whatever. But in the end, it's, it, it's not that big of a meat market, probably because it's so hard to do. Now, I will say this. If the government got out of the way and said, you can on-farm process 10,000 quail and sell and process on-farm in any given state, it would be a fantastic meat business. I bet you could do 10,000 and make $50,000 a year in revenue. And you, you could do it. And you could do it without plucking. You could do it exactly the way you and could, you could sell it. Now, here's another question that I don't know the answer to, but it would be another thing that might be around this. In Texas, I can sell up to like $50,000 a year under the cottage food law. If I took my own quail and created a value added food product out of it, like quail sausage or quail soup or quail stock or something, could I sell that given that the original thing was processed on farm and not? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a very gray area, and I would just overall generally say, Don't build your revenue model on that because it's shaky ground, unless your state says it's okay, all right? And you know me, I detest things like this. Um, Last question, and I saved it for last for a reason, and there's been hints at my opinion about it all the way through here. But since this whole thing started, I've heard a lot of people saying, can this really be sustainable? Can this really be regenerative? Is raising a quail in a cage permaculture? And, and I just want to start out with the fact that I mentioned earlier. Don't we do this with rabbits all the time? Doesn't the, 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 the literal king of pastured meats, Joel Salatin, and his son Daniel Salatin raised rabbits in cages? And everybody's okay with this? No one has a problem with a bunny in a cage, but not a bird. And, yeah, well, but Joel Salton tractors his rabbits, or Daniel Salton tractors his rabbits. Yes, but the breeders sit in cages just like every other rabbit hutch on planet Earth. And, and nobody freaks out. Nobody goes, oh, can this be regenerative? And everybody goes, look at all the beautiful rabbit manure. Well, look at all the beautiful quail manure. Well, they're happy in there. So are the quail. They really are. If you if you had been bred to be happy somewhere for 2,000 years, you'd be happy there too. That's why you're happy in a forest, because you were bred to be happy in a forest. For more generations than 2,000 years worth of it, by the way. But what it makes me think of is all the Joker memes. The Joker, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker character from Batman, right? If you've seen these memes, if you've been on Facebook, you've seen them. Like one might be, uh, one I saw recently, you know, it's the Joker character. And he had some line, you know, like this and that. But everybody loses their mind in the movie. And... Like so the one I'm looking at right now it says, "See a girl in a bikini, and no one bats an eye, but see a girl in her underwear, and everybody loses their minds." And there's many versions of this. I almost feel like I should do one with like uh, two pictures, like that meme across the top, and then underneath, like, a, 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 a collage of two things. It's like a, a beautiful rabbit setup up and a beautiful quail setup up. put a rabbit in a cage and nobody bats an eye, but put a quail in a cage and everybody loses their mind. If you think about that, that's that's what some of this angst is over. But I want the quail to live like it's supposed to. The the Courtneyx the quail today have been so domesticated, if you threw them out in the woods, they would all end up dead. They are not what they were when the breeding started. Just like some breeds of chickens today couldn't make it if you threw them out in the woods. They're just not suited for it. They are what they are. And there's a lot great about them. So what... What can and can't be regenerative is generally not based on what it is, but how it's used. So, can a bulldozer be regenerative? Well, we start pushing lines on contour with it and building dams with it, sure as hell can. It might burn quite a bit of diesel fuel in doing that, which is not sustainable long term, but it can, but, but a diesel, you know, a, a diesel bulldozer with a skilled operator in a week maybe burns a hundred gallons of diesel fuel but it'll pull it, put in a system that'll be regenerative and uh, sustainable for thousands of years. Long after the bulldozers rusted into the ground, that system will still be there. And it could do that for years and years. Every day it could be doing that. Most bulldozers do some things that are damaging and some things that are regenerative. Because We could also use a bulldozer to mine and destroy landscapes. So is a bulldozer regenerative? It depends on how you use it. Is is a gun is a gun regenerative? Not just is a gun safe or is a gun... But can a gun be used to be, to be part of a regenerative process? Well, in a well-managed property, and we're using the gun as a control tool to harvest deer, we can actually take a small deer population and by harvesting the right deer at the right time, not only will we produce meat, but the overall population of the deer can grow. We could also take the gun and shoot every single deer we see until we decimate the population. It's just a tool. How's it used? So can captive quail be part of a regenerative system? Isn't that small-scale factory farming? It can be. We can cram 16 quail in a 2x2 cage and they'll live. We can put in 1,000 cages and have them poop out 16,000 eggs a day. We can feed them the lowest-cost food known to man. We could take all the manure that falls out and, and, and just have this toxic ick in it because of GMOs and pass through herbicides. We could sell it to a commercial fertilizer facility that just turns it into compost that's really not very high value, doesn't really care where it comes from, but has herb, uh, 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 herbicide residue in it that actually kills plants when somebody tries to grow a tomato in it and looks sick and doesn't know why or we can leave all that stuff to just lay and rot somewhere and stink and go on aerobic, right? Or we can use it to produce biogas, or we can use it to produce high-quality compost by giving high-quality inputs to the quail. We can take the the manure from the quail and and the the wood chips and feed them to worms and produce a premium-quality fertilizer that we can then use to grow a garden and produce even more food for people in the quail. How is it being used? As I said earlier, there are there are certain health conditions that respond well when people begin to make quail eggs part of their diet. We need to regenerate human beings, not just land. We need to regenerate the health in our society, not just our soil. The two are linked and we need to do both, but we can. How regenerative is it when you become a supplier of eggs to someone who was buying toxic ick eggs? from Albertsons or Walmart until you came around. How regenerative is it for your family to say, this is where our food comes right from right here and produce their own food? How regenerative is that? What do quail, you know, what are the intrinsic characteristics of a quail? They, they scratch like little chickens. They eat. We can put them in a system like I'm talking about and produce five different outputs from them. They, they can control pests. To a degree in a a quail tractor. We can tractor them around and through a garden. We can tractor them in places that it's really not convenient to tractor chickens. So we can take our gardens and make the width of the rows between our garden rows, the width of our quail tractors, and tractor our quail from there. We could do that with a chicken too, but doesn't mean the quail can't do it. And we can put the quail where the chicken can't go. We can put the quail where the chicken can't go. People that can't keep chickens can keep quail. And they can produce meat and eggs. Where with chickens, if you're in a place where you can only keep a small flock, like four to six chickens, you'd still be better off with quail because the meat quality of a cold chicken is crap. So how regenerative is it to start putting food in the backyards of suburbia beyond just a vegetable garden? To actually be able to produce meat and and eggs locally? Because even if you can't sell meat, you can still give it to your neighbor. and Maybe they give you something back. Like, I don't know a big bushel of apples from their tree, or whatever it is, right? How, how regenerative is that? Just because something can be abused doesn't mean that it has to be abused. Just because something that can be abusive doesn't mean it has to be abusive. It's, it's, it's all in the application. How regenerative is it if a family that wants to become farmers and go full scale with it starts with something like quail and microgreens and develops a customer base and develops a freaking income and files a, a, a Schedule F on their tax return for two years so they qualify to borrow money under an ag loan and go out and buy a farm and transform the whole farm. And this is their starting point and their skill set and their market development. How regenerative is that? I find the question almost a little bit offensive, except that some people asking it don't mean it that way. Some people are legitimately asking the question. Some people just are concerned. But some people, I think, want to insinuate that this type of thing can't be regenerative. And and, and there's people that don't know, so it's an ignorance issue. And I don't mean that as an insult. And there's people that do know. But they just don't like seeing people able to succeed. Because I don't really know of something that can make this work for as many people as this can, when we come to going to high-quality f- food at this level of nutrient density. Because a tomato, a cucumber, a potato cannot compete for nutrient density with meat and eggs. It can't. And, and anybody that's an honest person knows it can't. I'm not saying you can't put together a vegan diet and be healthy. You can. I think you do better with some animal product, but you can't. It can be done. But it can't be done in a backyard in suburbia. There's too much you need to do if you're going to live on a vegetarian diet to augment what you don't get because of meat, and sooner or later you're going to rely on grains, just like the quail does. Only you're going to eat a hell of a lot more than the quail does to produce what the quail produces. Because the quail's made to eat grains. The quail has a crop. It has a gizzard. It's supposed to eat hard seeds and hard grains. You don't have a crop. You don't have a gizzard. You have a great big liver. You're designed to eat meat. That's what human beings are designed to do. And if you want to be a vegan, that's fine. Go ahead. But let's, let's be honest. We're never going to make the majority of vegans happy with any animal production whatsoever for food. We're never going to make them happy. They, the Not all, but the majority. No matter what you do, if you're raising animals for food, they're going to be unhappy about it. So I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but all I'm going to say is I can't worry about your opinion about this. Because your opinion... If I was feeding the animal spring water that flowed from the fingertips of God and it was eating food that was fit for a pharaoh and it lived the most amazing life that any creature ever could and it was massaged once a day by an angel, you would still have a problem with it. So I can't worry about that segment. Again, not to be disrespectful, I just can't make you, I'm not going to try to make someone happy that I can't make happy. And you shouldn't either. So I think when we look at quail as part of a regenerative system, it can be extremely regenerative. Brad Davies posted a picture today of a bare dirt backyard, and a year later a gorgeously improved piece of ground with all of this like nasturtium and all this beautiful stuff growing in it. Quail did that. They weren't tractored there. They were in their cages. But their manure, their litter, improved that land and made that happen. How regenerative is that? Yeah. The answer to this question is simple. Can captive quail be part of a regenerative system? Yes. And anybody who says they can't just doesn't want it to be true. And there's nothing I can do to help that person. But hopefully, today I've helped you. Hopefully I've given you all of the answers you need to give this a shot. Because here's when i to go back to the, like the very beginning of the show um a good book to recommend you if you right now want to do this and maybe you have to listen to this a second time i know it was a long show but if you want to do this you don't need a book you need a cage ink system a control system you need shelter you need water you need food and you need quail and you'll figure it the heck out you'll figure it out because in the end that's how this always works you can read books and read this and read that this isn't raising cattle this isn't that hard there are literally hundreds of people online on forums every day that exist in some weird uh way just to help other people do stuff like this the regenerative ag, regenerative ag group on facebook has half of these questions were already answered before i did the show by other people that commented in the comments right so there are there is answers there are people that will help you. If you find somebody locally to buy from, they'll show you what they're doing. Start there and make it better. And that's my, my kind of my, my finish with this on the regenerative thing. You don't have to get this perfect or even as good as you can to get started. Get started and figure out what works and then move toward things that are more natural. I have quail in cages right now because I have customers that want eggs. I have quail in cages right now to learn about them, to develop a better quality cage for other people to use while I build my aviary. I'm not going to wait till it's done to bring a quail here because I have things to get done in the interim. And I'm trying to build a system that will be the most natural way that you can practically raise these animals. But I'm not starting there. I'm heading there. And that's how you know if you're actually getting things done in a regenerative way. If you're starting and actually doing something, instead of sitting around doing nothing and bitching that other people are doing it wrong, and yet your starting point is not your finish point, and you're migrating from that starting point to something better, something better, something better, until you've optimized it for what's possible for you now, then you're regenerative. Otherwise, all you are is a loudmouth. And there's a lot of loudmouths in this world, this permaculture, you call it whatever you want. The sustainable agriculture, regenerative, you know, restoration, this whole world, it's full of a lot of people that talk a lot of stuff, and they don't do anything. And it's funny. They always talk about the people that are actually getting shit done. So come hang out with us at Regenerative Agriculture on Facebook, even if you don't like quail, because there's something there you probably will like. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't.
0: He turned 35 last Sunday and his hair he found some gray. But he still ain't changed his lifestyle. He likes it better the old way. So he grows a little garden in the backyard by the fence. He's consuming what he's growing. Nowadays in self-defense He gets out there in the twilight zone sometimes When it just don't make no sense yeah, He gets off on country music Cause disco left him cold He's got a young friends and a new way, But he's just too friggin' old Woodstock and the day John Lennon died, and the music made him happy, and the silence made him cry. Yeah, he thinks of John sometimes, and he has to wonder why, cause he's an old man. Was sure back in the sixties That everyone was hip Then they sent him off to Vietnam On his senior trip And they forced him to become a man While he was still a boy And behind each wave of tragedy He waited for the joy Now this world may change around him But he just can't change no more Cause he's an old stays away a lot now From the parties and the clubs And he's thinking while he's jogging around Sure is glad he quit the hard drugs Cause him and his kind get more endangered every day And pretty soon the species will just up and fade away Like the smoke from that torpedo just up and played away Yeah, he's an old hippie And he don't know what to do Should he hang on to the old? Should he grab on to the new? He's an old hippie This new life is just ain't bust He ain't trying to change nobody He just tries He's trying to change nobody. He's just trying real hard to adjust.